intolerant movies. They've got the building. They have already killed one hostage. They've got the odds. They've got his wife. No, no! Now, he's got one night to get it all back. You really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay. Bruce Willis in 40 Stories of Sheer Adventure. Die Hard, rated R. Now playing in selected cities. Starts Wednesday, July 20th at theaters everywhere. Die Hard was released in 1988 as a huge box office hit. The story of everyman cop John McClane and his Christmas Eve mission to take down a group of German thieves, the film launched the Hollywood career of star Bruce Willis and is today regarded as a festive classic and one of the definitive action blockbusters. My name's John, and the guys sitting on a beach earning 20% are Westy. No fucking shit, lady! Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? And Luke. Hey, Sprickensy talk, huh? Welcome to the party, pals. ATRM are in the Nakatomi to talk Willis, Rickman, and Roy Rogers. Only now, we have a machine gun. Boom, boom, boom. Hello and welcome to All the Right Movies, a podcast that will blow you through the back wall of the theatre on classic and hit films. Yes. <laughs> to start off the day, we have some bad news in that Matt won't be joining us uh-huh. for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> not really. He's not dead. He's off at his own office Christmas party in a vest, no doubt. No, no doubt. doubt. That'll turn green soon. Exactly. I quit the habit of a lifetime. <laughs> We do have a festive feast for you, though, as this episode we're getting into the huge 1980s action and Christmas classic that is Die Hard. Yes. Oh, yeah. Before we come out of the course for a few laughs, though, let's talk Patreon for once. Uh Uh-huh. Why not? If you like what we do on this, our ATRM Classic Podcast, and hopefully you do, you can help Mm -hmm. support us keep on doing it by becoming an ATRM patron. Patrons get exclusive access to our bonus podcast, Double Feature, and access to our entire archive of bonus episodes and ATRM Classic episodes. The archive is a beast now, and we have many episodes in there. If you like classic action films like Die Hard, Aliens is there. If Bruce Willis is your guy, check out Pulp Fiction. Or if you're a fan of John McTiernan as a filmmaker, we've got Predator too. We haven't got Predator too. No, not Predator too. No, Patron <laughs> is the only way in though. The, the last lock cannot be cut locally. <laughs> <laughs> so better than six hundred and forty million dollars in negotiable bearer bonds, I would say. Probably about the same. Close. About the same. Yep. Yeah, same value. So to find out more and sign up, please visit patreon.com forward slash all the right movies. Or if you're an Apple Podcast user, you can subscribe directly on there now as well. Just look for the subscribe button. Give it a click. There you are. Yes, please. Easy as that. Nice early Christmas present. Lovely. For now, though, it's Christmas, Westy. It is. The time of miracles. Yes. So why are we talking about Die Hard? Die Hard. Everyone loves Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> Westy Boobley. Uh, oh, honestly, what a treat. This film is like an old friend of mine. I absolutely yeah. love it. It's so comforting. It's so good. It's so precise. It never gets tired. I never get sick of it. I don't think there's a scene that I go, nah. like I've literally just put it on this afternoon and you were recording and I couldn't really drag myself away from it. I think it's the <laughs> first time I've ever turned it off to so have to come and talk about it. That's the only way I'll turn it off. <laughs> such a vibrance to it, such an energy to it. 
I can't remember the first time I saw it. It just always seems to have been there. It's that weekend film that I would watch at any point and it would finish and I would put it straight back on again. I think it's a definitive action film. I think it turned a lot of heads when it came out. It broke the mold of the macho bullshit in the late 80s and the mid-80s and the early 80s, really. It's a fantastic mm. piece of work, fantastic film. And hey, it's Christmas, so we might as well talk about it. <laughs> First time you're celebrating, Westy. Fucking right, it's the only time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a bit like Sergeant Powell. I came to the party a little bit late with Die Hard. What? And Twinkies. <laughs> and Twinkies, and Twinkies, yeah. I didn't see it when I was a kid or a teenager. I think I was at least 20 when I saw it for the first time. What? Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, by that point, it already had a huge reputation as one of the great action mm. films. And I remember, despite having high expectations, still being impressed by it. Yeah. And having seen it many times since, I watched Die Hard most Christmases. That yeah. reputation mostly has it for good reason, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about Bruce Willis and the role that made him a worldwide star pretty much overnight. We'll talk yeah. about John McTiernan and his reputation as a master of directing action yeah. sequences. Lots yeah. more too, of course, not least Alan Rickman. And how today, Die Hard has almost become like the blueprint in lots of ways for action movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. we've had Die Hard on a Boat in Under Siege, Die Hard on a Plane in Air Force One, Die Hard on a Bus in Speed, mm-hmm. and now here, Die Hard on a Podcast. Right. <laughs> Amazing. Wes is on the German cigarettes, I think. I am. Just as explosive. <laughs> I've got the detonators. Here we go. <laughs> so, yeah, let's see where it goes. Okay. And Luke, how's Die Hard for you? Well, I mean, it's like Westy said, it's probably the definitive action film. And mm-hmm. it's been a personal favourite of mine since the late 80s, since it came out. I remember it coming out. My parents went to see it and I was desperate to see it. Mm-hmm. And it's just got it all. It's got great writing and direction, exploding circular discs which I'd love. Always great. <laughs> if I can get my hands on them. It's got a charming and able lead actor in Bruce Willis, one of the ultimate movie villains in Hans Gruber. And I think the film as a whole can be taken for granted because it naturally gets a spin every Christmas. So the sheer movie making skill on show, I think is sometimes underappreciated, pretty fucking underappreciated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it shouldn't just be filled under the do not open till Christmas genre, much like puppies. It's got so much more mm-hmm. than a Christmas film, if it even is a Christmas film. Um, right. And obviously, I don't need any encouragement to talk about Die Hard. So Die Hard was produced by the Gordon Company and Silver Pictures, distributed by 20th Century Fox, and released on July the 15th, 1988, like any good Christmas classic. Mm-hmm. Filmed <laughs> on location in Los Angeles, it was directed by John McTiernan, written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. DeSouza, and it stars Bruce Willis as John McClane, Bonnie Bedelia as Holly Gennaro McClane, Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, and Reginald Vell Johnson as Sergeant Al Powell. Surely does. Let's go then, shall we? Let's do it. Ellie, here we come. Okay, it was the night before Christmas, so stick around for the beginning of Die Hard. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. It doesn't show signs of stopping, and I've bought some corn for popping. The lights are turned way down low. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Die Hard doesn't hang about too long before getting straight into it, and we're covering off the first act in some detail. The big action sequences involving McLean and the German brothers Grimm, Tony and Carl are coming. <laughs> but first, we've got some fiery character introductions. 
Oh, yeah. Yep. So we start at the Nakatomi Plaza. New York cop John McLean has arrived for his wife Holly's seemingly innocent office Christmas party, but he's not alone. A bunch of dangerous Deutschlanders led by Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber gatecrash the party and take hostages. Mm. How was the opening for you, Luke? Yeah, an amazing opening. And I really like the setup with the estranged married couple, John mm-hmm. and Holly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think what's clear is that they very much love each other, but there's obviously a history of domestic issues left unresolved. Mm. And that's why John's here. Yeah, a great divide. Yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of walking on eggshells a bit with each other, but they're keeping things on an even keel. Cappy Roberts retired to Pomona, but she's got a spare bedroom. Mm-hmm. They're making progress, but John just can't help himself. He can can't, he? can he? No, I cringe every gone. time. Just fucking <laughs> leave it. Help. Leave it, John. <laughs> <laughs> Complaining about her using a maiden name. I mean, you know, I do get it. If you come from New York to LA to see your wife and family for the holidays and you immediately find out that she's changed her surname, you know that something's wrong. Something's in the post. But he just handles it all wrong and he knows it. And the ripple effect of this argument can be felt throughout the film. It's John's motivation to save the hostages because his wife is threatened. John is the slither of hope that Holly has of making it out alive. Mm -hmm. And it all feeds directly into that bathroom scene where his feet are all messed up. Yeah. The emotion that that scene is charged by this one. Uh, it's, a, it's a magnificent setup for the characters, this. It is. First off, for me, what kind of office party takes place on Christmas Eve night? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to that. No chance. <laughs> Japanese corporation, obviously. Uh, yeah, really high, bro. String quartet in Beethoven. Love it. Why? Yeah. Shaky and why I'm not good enough, all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Imagine that on the string quartet. Shaky. <laughs> <laughs> spinning the cello <laughs> yeah but the meeting between McLean and Holly I mean it's not the most exciting the film gets obviously but I no, do no. think it's so important in creating a platform for the late action sequences and that sets up the characters mm. really effectively so we care yeah, about the action yeah, it when it comes I mean this is the only scene that we get between McLean and Holly before Hans and the brothers Grimm show up so they get one yeah. chance to get this dynamic down and the writers and Bruce Willis and Bonnie Bedelia as the actors do a great job yeah. I think, because the relationship between McLean and Holly powers lots of the film. Oh, it does. What I don't like, though, is worst man in the world, Harry Ellis, knocking about straight from the off. Yeah. Firstly, <laughs> he's amazing. Just <laughs> shamelessly snorting coke off Holly's desk. That's yeah. outrageous. Unbelievable. Yeah. He was just making a call. <laughs> and then he knows Holly's got two kids, and he's trying to pick her up on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that laugh. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> so horrible. Well, I'll tell you what else reminds me of now in real life. Okay. Donald Trump Jr. Right. Off his head, overly inflated the opinion of himself. Same face. It's him through and through. So not the most entertaining scene in Die Hard, maybe, between Holly and McLean. But I do think the, like, marital argument is one of the most important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's one of the greatest pieces of writing as well, because it, it, it starts the foreshadowing that continues all the way through. The dialogue and the argument was largely improvised by Bonnie Bedelia and Bruce Willis. John McTiernan let them go and Stephen D. Souser was on set. He took notes and incorporated the improvements of the dialogue back into the script. Yeah, I think it's really well constructed. The scene, a bit of a cut above what you normally get for this kind of film, it is. I think. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not sure if this was the case in 1988 or not. Nowadays, I think Holly comes across as way too good for McLean. She's really really intelligent, very (laughs) successful, extremely reasonable, and his values seem totally outdated. He's one argument away from saying women just shouldn't have jobs. Yeah, pretty (laughs) much, yeah. You can see that they've been together a long time, though, and I think her life has improved and his hasn't, and I think he's more bitter about that. Yeah, I think they were high school sweethearts or something like that. She's grown up and he isn't. Yeah. 
the backdrop out of the window in Holly's office is obviously the LA cityscape. It was actually a 380-foot-long matte painting with LED lights added. Right. DP Jan de Bond added a light behind the painting, which created the sunset effect. Nice. And, it, I mean, it looks legit. I've never, ever called that one into question. Nah, never. That's massive as well. That's a 380 big... foot. That is huge. Fucking <laughs> <Looking> ridiculous. <laughs> I'll go into a scene which always kind of pulls at my heartstrings because you know what? I really like Takagi. Nice man. I really love the guy. Very He's nice so man. canny. And when she's coming in and she's like, have you introduced yourself? No, we've just been sticking spears in him. Of course we have. He's just a really <laughs> nice guy. And when he tells Alice that he's a policeman, obviously he's been doing the coke. He's just looking after everybody. I love them little moments. But the That's way he, just, he stands up for himself and he holds his ground and that back and forth between him and Hans and Tagagi's just sweating. He's, he's moving around in the seat. It's a great, great performance because you really feel it. And it's just this ruthless nature that comes across and you really care about Takagi at this point, even though he hasn't had much yeah, screen time. It's much. really, really brilliant. And the way that he kills him is just so ruthless. He does that count. And you've seen it a million times, haven't you? Right, I'm just going to count to three. And it never happens. No, it, it never, never really happens. But this time it's just bang. And just that cut's yeah. amazing where the blood hits the wall. Mm-hmm. And then you get mm-hmm. McLean's reaction. He's so precise, but he's left a right fucking mess there for Tony <laughs> to clean up. <laughs> That's crazy. See if you can dispose of that. Yeah, yeah, excellent. But I love the way this just introduces a character. You think he's going to be a real big player. Bang, count to three, he's out of there. I think it just sets up Hans through Takagi, which you really like. And they put the effort into liking that character so you can kind of despise Hans a little bit more. So I think it's a brilliant, brilliant setup again. Yeah. Yeah. I love the intro before this to the Germans when they come marching off the truck into the Nakatomi. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Bunch of European ponces. <laughs> I wouldn't get in the way. <laughs> I think it's a great touch the way the hands of the crew are all given names, though it's not so great how the characters don't always actually speak German. They just kind of yell German sounding noises a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Fuffenschal, yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Links. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> later on when Han says, Scheiße den Fenster, that means shoot the window, not shoot the glass. I yeah, mean, right. I think if there's a German dub of Die Hard, it must be all over the place. The German speakers. Yeah. 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 I like the little side bet that Theo and Carl have here in that scene with Takagi and Hans. Oh, yeah. Theo has his money on Takagi not blabbing. Yeah. And that little look that Hans gives them. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely little details. <laughs> it's not yeah. over yet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I like the intros to Hans. Firstly, when he's walking through the party, he goes looking for Takagi. He's reciting basically Takagi's whole life story. Shows he's a yeah. professional. He's done his research. And then when he shoots Takagi, he's clearly a sociopath and will happily kill a father of five to get what he wants. So a really yeah. good setup. Yeah, it is. Again, as well, when Takagi's tries to get everyone's attention, he's getting, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's great. exactly how yeah. Hans gets their attention. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> On the death of Takagi, producer Joel Silver said, I need to see his brains leaving his head. Amazing. I need to give something to the MPAA to cut because I want to get other stuff passed. So as a result, four frames from Takagi's head exploding were removed to avoid an X rating. Right, just four frames. And everything else just slipped under the fence. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, we see enough. That shot of the blood splattering on the door. Yeah, it's great. Shocking moment. Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) The atrium area where the hostages are held throughout the film has a big water feature. It was based on a house called Falling Water, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in 1935. It was the most expensive set in the production. Also, the model bridge we see in Takagi's office is an unrealized Frank Lloyd Wright design from 1953. The production designer, Jack DeGovia, was a big fan and had the model sent to Frank Lloyd Wright after production wrapped. And then Simon and Garfunkel wrote a song about it. <laughs> so long. <laughs> Have you seen Falling Water? 
No. No. It's in Pennsylvania, and it's unbelievable. It also inspired the Van Damme house at the end of North by Northwest. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I thought you meant Jean-Claude Van Damme there. I, was that I thought one? you meant JCVD there. <laughs> <laughs> the other Van Damme. Yeah. <laughs> the best one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the opening to Die Hard. Coke, arguments, Beethoven and murder. Pretty much what Matt's up to right now, I'd imagine. Exactly. And we've only just started. Once the Kogi is bumped off, all hell breaks loose. McLean heads for the safety of the upper floors of the Nakatomi with Han's crew in pursuit. In the action scenes that follow, McLean kills Tony Resky, starting a movie-long vendetta with his brother Carl, and after unsuccessfully ordering a pizza, finds himself in a shootout with more Germans led by Carl. Yeah. Brilliant. There are rules for policemen, Westy. There are. Not that you follow them. <laughs> you won't hurt me. <laughs> there are rules for policemen. Yeah, I love this sequence when Tony comes back and you've got McLean versus Tony. And I think it's one of the great setups because you realize McLean's not that hard, is he? He's just a maniac. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's pretty much beaten here. He hasn't got much of a thought process apart from I'm going to start this circular saw. That's going to do it. And it's a great reveal when he comes around the side of the wood and McLean's not there. The saw goes yeah, off and then he's there and it's like, right, okay, that's about as intelligent as he gets throughout the whole film, really. But it's just a mental when he just, he's got the gun to him and he just thinks this guy's obviously about three foot taller than him. I'll have a go. He's got a gun yeah. on him. I'll have a go and I'll just elbow him and he's got him. Like Tony's slamming him into walls. This is a lucky, lucky escape. Very much. Just falls down the stairs, snaps his neck. I think the thing that really sells this sequence is the aftermath and what he does with the body and how he kind of twists yeah, that of around and takes the piss a little bit mm-hmm. with the, you know, now I have a machine gun written on it. It's just, that's a great touch because he has yeah. got something else now, but the audience are st- you're still a little bit on the back foot. Cause you're like, I'm not convinced that this guy can look after himself. To be fair, these guys yeah. are strong mm-hmm. and that's what I love about this sequence. Cause it doesn't reassure the audience. It kind of puts you on the back foot thinking he's going to fumble his way through this. I'm really worried. And that's why I love it. Yeah. I don't quite understand Tony's outfit here. Why is he in, in like a, a grey two-piece? Grey sweat two-piece? Yeah, lovely. And everybody else is uh, like in European fashion. Yeah. It's like reminds me of like the Sigan Air catalogue from the late 80s. <laughs> he's, he's like an action figure, he isn't is he? Like an action, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Die Hard's based on a novel, and we'll talk about that. But in that novel, the main antagonist isn't called Hans Gruber. He's called Little Tony the Red. Right. They changed it right. for the film, but that's why Tony is called Tony after that character. Right, got right. yeah. Mm. And this, after the setting with McLean and Holly, it's another great character touch that they make Tony Carl's brother, which creates this whole dynamic between McLean and Carl for the rest of the film. Yeah. Mm. Also, Tony, does anyone else think he looks like a serial killer? Oh, yeah. Specifically, Dharma. Jeffrey Dharma. Yeah, he looks like Dharma. Yeah, yeah. Glasses. yeah he looks just like him. <laughs> yeah. He's played by a guy called Andreas Wisniewski. He was a real right. German, but I reckon that they've definitely told him to ramp up the accent for the film. I won't hurt you, my friend. <laughs> I promise. Yeah. The fire has been called off. <laughs> That's quite seductive, that joke. It's beautiful. Yeah, and after this, I like the moment where, obviously, Carl has got a family vendetta to settle and he busts out the heavy-duty artillery. Yeah. The roof. But still, Carl remains calm and measured in his approach. He's not letting his emotions get the better of him, which he could quite easily. His brother's dead mm-hmm. and he's on the job with him. They're obviously close. That wide shot of Powell looking at the Nakatomi is something else. Oh, you yeah. can see the gunfire lighting up the top yeah, of the building. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's great. But the scene itself, it's just so magnificently staged. McLean gets some humor in there. Your quote at the start, Westy. Yeah. But it's not done in a cheesy one-liner way. He's obviously exasperated yeah. and furious. Which makes it funny. 
<laughs> it does yeah. make it funny, yeah. And he's outgunned and outnumbered, but this builds on the character's resourcefulness as well, that he can get himself out of this really tight spot. Yeah. Because he's got his kind of cop street smarts to fall back on. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned about Frank Lloyd Wright. I'm just crazy about the production design all over the film. But here in particular, that fan that McLean inches through before shots are fired. Yeah. And the intricacies of the interior of the building, the vents and the elevator shafts, you really feel like you're, you're, like you're in there and you can feel the claustrophobia yeah. Yeah. of it all. You feel how cold it's it is. great. Yeah. You can, yeah. Yeah, once the action starts with the death of Tony, the film doesn't let up. Every action sequence no. seems to ramp it up from the last one, and this one definitely does that. There's a mm. great shot where the camera pans across the top of the roof from a couple of the Germans to McLean, like, exchanging fire, past McLean yeah. to Carl, walking across the top of the roof. Yeah. I mean, great. it's not exactly Alfonso Cuaron, but surely the longest shot in the film. It's yeah. at least eight seconds. Yeah, and at mm. the time, quite original for a Hollywood film. Yeah. Very much. And the action's more varied this time. There's the intense action of the shootout, and then it's tension as McLean's trying to escape. There's so many moments in the film where the bad guys are within, like, a whisker of getting McLean. Yeah, and the yeah. part where he's hiding in the vent and Carl's using his gun to port the casing is maybe my favourite of the lot. Really inventive. That's great. And really yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Instead of making a custom air vent to fit Bruce Willis, they brought one in, and Willis struggled to get through it quickly, meaning they didn't have enough dialogue to fill up the scene. Joel Silver called the writer David E. DeSouza and at a panic at like two in the morning, demanding he get on the set to write more dialogue. They fitted Willis with an earpiece so DeSouza could feed him lines, and that's where, come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. That's where that line came from. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a line. Yeah. It is a great line. I know that the famous line where McLean says, now I know what a TV dinner feels like, that was improvised by Willis. Yeah. Great. To be fair, if I'd been dragged out of bed at 2 a.m. to write some dialogue and Willis started improvising, I'd be furious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'd have to come up with that coastline. You have to. And that is the beginning of Die Hard. Some huge action from the get go, and it's only going to get bigger, louder, and more intense from here. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Kiss your fucking Dalmatian. The director. The director of Die Hard was John McTiernan. He directed just two features before Die Hard, the universally panned horror nomads in 1986 and the yeah. still much-loved action film Predator in 1987. Was that Pierce Brosnan in Nomads? It was. It is, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> Making a name for himself at the time then, Luke. Yes, indeed. So what do you think of Jay McTee's work on Die Hard? Back-to-back action classics. Yeah. Um, for me, McTeenan is the, the master of taking multiple scenes, breaking them apart, and then piecing them back together by cross-cutting the action. Right. He does it in The Hunt for Red October as well. Yes. And here, he does it when Powell first arrives at Nakatomi. Powell's snooping around in the seemingly safe surroundings of the lobby, unaware of the dangers around the corner. And this is cross-cut with the frantic goings on upstairs. McLean's trying to smash the window. The terrorists are mobilising. And when it cuts back down to Powell, the music stops. Yeah. And it really heightens the tension because we, as an audience, know so much more than him. Yeah. And it's moments of tension heaped on top of each other. And near the end, this is the McDean and piece de resistance. You've got the fight with Carl on top of Hans finding out that Holly is John's wife, Mm -hmm. on top of the helicopters flying in, Jeopardy on top of Jeopardy. But it ties in thematically as well because the FBI are double-crossing Hans, who in turn is double-crossing them. It's a double-double-cross, which again, (laughs) it hugely adds to the dramatic tension. Who's going to win here? And it all sounds so complicated. But McTeenan makes it... As easy as pie to understand. He does. Somehow. He drops McLean in the middle of all that as well. And has to jump yeah, off the exactly. roof. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's incredible stuff from McTiernan. Yeah, it seems that like on a personal level, John McTiernan wasn't hugely popular on the set. Bonnie Bedelia said, I've never seen John smile. Steve Niedersauza called him dour. And Reginald Vell Johnson said he'd crack his face if he smiled. <laughs> <laughs> so a grumpy sod, but judging him on the end product, yeah, it's hard to be critical of John McTiernan. Yeah. He has a reputation of being one of the great directors of action. Films like Predator and The Hunt for Red October back that up. But Die Hard is his masterpiece, I think. Yeah. I'll talk yeah, a bit great. about the cinematography when we get to Yander Bond later, but McTiernan brings more than just the visuals. The whole film, just about, is set in the Nakatomi, and I think the way McTiernan makes location always clear without getting bogged down and spelling it out is really impressive. Yeah, yeah. You mm-hmm. always have a sense of where McLean is in the building, maybe not specifically, but at least in relation to the bad guys. Yeah. When McLean first arrives at the Nakatomi, he uses that light touch electronic system to find Holly, so we see a layout of the building early on, which is really clever. Mm. Yeah. And also, McTiernan's handling of the tone, I think, is exceptional. There's quite a lot of humour in the film, but it never undermines the narrative. The most impressive bit to me is during the rooftop shootout we talked about. As McLean's, like, fighting for his life, we cut to the 7-Eleven, where we see Sergeant Paul for the first time, getting the Mm. piss ripped out of him by that cashier for buying loads of Twinkies. (laughs) It's a comedy moment, and then it cuts back to the shootout, and the tonal switches are, like, seamless. Yeah, yeah, they are. There's not jarring at all, are they? Not at all. Superb action filmmaking, excellent handling of tone, and he might have been a bit of a Mardi arse, but that's ultimately down to John McTiernan. His best film for me. Yeah, Mardi arse. <laughs> <laughs> Very British insult there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think McTiernan approached this as the opposite film to Predator. I think he saw all that machismo on display, <laughs> all of how easy it was to throw them boys into an action sequence. And then I think he's just making that thing. And what would it be like if there was just a cop from New York who was off the streets who was put in a situation like this and put him in these situations where he has to think his way out instead of kind of fight his way out? There's no fat on this film whatsoever. It absolutely yeah. zips along. And every character seems to have a real point. And he's got a great use of that every man of that, I could be that guy. I'd love to be that. I'm an inch away from being McLean. I'm about three miles away from being Schwarzenegger, but I'm pretty close. I've got a vest. Do you know what I mean? I can take my shoes off. You smoke. Yeah. These are very, very bad for you. But you've, you've got all of these things. And for me, he's a real, real master of static action and old school shots. The way he mm. uses a close-up is almost seamless. In normal, like yeah. some directors, even Fincher, when he goes for a close-up, he's like, close-up, everyone. McTiernan doesn't. You don't even know that. He just goes into a close-up, and it's just so fleeting, and it just, it's so smooth, and the transitions between his shots are amazing. Low angles, tracking shots, smoothness, everything. Just this use of classic, classic visual storytelling. And that actually say, if a really, really good film, you should be able to turn the sound off and know what's going on. That's Die Hard. Mm, very nice. The Die Hard producers were Joel Silva and Lawrence Gordon. And when they came onto the film, the first person they approached to direct wasn't John McTiernan. It was Paul Verhoeven. Fresh oh. off the success of Robocop. Bloodbath. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. <laughs> yeah, Verhoeven said no, but imagine that. That would have been insane. No logic. No logic, no. <laughs> Loads of social commentary. Yeah, yeah. McLean is Jesus. Allegory. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Standing on nails instead of glass, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joel Silver just worked with McTainan on Predator. Obviously, he liked what he saw, so after Verhoeven, he approached him about Die Hard, but McTainan declined because he wanted some time off. He was shattered after Predator. Obviously, tired of pumping iron with Arnie and the boys, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. And McTainan also didn't love the Die Hard script. He called it a terrorist movie, which 
is the film that he ended up making as well. To be quite it honest, it is a terrorist, still a terrorist film. film. Yeah. It is, 100%. <laughs> yeah, well, Silva wouldn't take no for an answer, obviously. So obviously. he kept on sending Matien in the script. After he'd said no three times, he finally said, okay, I could do it, but we need to change the terrorists to robbers. He reasoned the terrorists mm-hmm. made people sad and said, why would someone hire a babysitter and spend 25 bucks to see something that makes them feel like shit? I don't know, that's what I do on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a question specifically for you, Wesley, that one. It is, yeah. I'll, <laughs> tell him I'll drop him an email. <laughs> something else that interested McTiernan was that he said he saw the film as having parallels with the Midsummer Night's Dream. I mean, obviously, obviously I mean, come yeah. on. When, natural step. When were we going to get into this? <laughs> a festival night where everyone is involved. The princes become asses. The FBI and police are made to look stupid. The asses become princes. McLean and Powell save the day. Then the world goes back to normal the next day. McTiernan said he didn't mention Shakespeare to Joel Silver in case he got fired. Imagine that. Joel, <laughs> bit of Bill Joel. Shakespeare here. Fuck <laughs> off, Joel. Shakespeare in this. Get out. Get out. Fuck <laughs> off. Shakespeare and Silver together at last. Yeah. <laughs> they should have called it Die Bod in that case. <laughs> <laughs> Missed opportunity. <laughs> but um, bum Very good. The film was mostly filmed in and around the Fox Plaza building in LA, Century City. Yeah which stood in as the Nakatomi. Fox Plaza was still being built, so production took up the bottom and the top few floors of the building. Right. The majority of the remaining floors were full of Fox lawyers. McTiernan said that all the suits would complain if production was too loud before 5pm, and at one point a law firm actually threatened legal action if they didn't stop the noise. Well, right. And on the flip side of that, production after 5pm was complained about by the neighbours, rocking a hard place. <laughs> Is that why they blew up the bottom floors? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were in there at the time. Bye. <laughs> and the fallouts carried on throughout filming. They were shooting the final scene where there's loads of paper and debris everywhere over one weekend. Yeah, yeah. And Silva went and spoke to the building supervisors and asked them to make sure the lights were all turned off on the Friday so the buildings were all in darkness for the shoot. And I heard Richard Edlin, the visual effects producer, tell the story. And he said, the building supervisors intentionally left the lights on as a final fuck you to Joel Silva. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> what a set of bastards. Yeah. You cannot see Silver going over and being diplomatic about this, no. can you? He's going to be a dick. Yeah. You make sure them fucking lights are off. I'm yeah. fucking yeah. there. Now keep them on there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For his work on Die Hard, John McTiernan received no major award recognition. No surprise there, really. But no. in following no. this up with The Hunt for Red October in 1990 and Die Hard with a Vengeance in 1995, his legacy as a great action filmmaker was sealed. Absolutely, I think, yeah. I would say so, certainly. In the middle of all that, he did Last Action Hero as well. Yeah, Medicine Man. Medicine Man. <laughs> so, not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> the cast. John McTiernan was relatively inexperienced as a filmmaker when he got the Die Hard gig, and the same is definitely true of his main cast. We're going to be talking about Alan Rickman as antagonist of the piece Hans Gruber, as well as key supporting turns from Bonnie Bedelia as Holly Gennaro McLean and Reginald Vell Johnson as Sergeant Al Powell. Yeah. But we're starting with the main man. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So Bruce Willis plays John Roy McLean. A New York cop <laughs> caught up in the Christmas Eve shenanigans in the Nakatomi, where with McLean for the majority of the film, as he works to take down Hans' crew, forms a bond with Powell, and ultimately reconciles with his estranged wife, Holly. Yeah, from one fly in the ointment, the monkey in the wrench, the pain in the ass to another, Westy. 
How was McLean and Bruce Willis? <laughs> Wesley. <laughs> As if anyone's surprised you're going to say my name after that. I think he's just wonderful. He's just wonderful. So accessible as a character. So well played. And he's not scared to make it funny, to make it vulnerable. And he has some mm. real comedy chops in this that I think kind of fly under the radar a little bit because it's just so intense as you're watching it. But it's when you remember it later on and you go, wow, that character was really lovable. But all of the comedy elements come at these times of peril. One bit that I really, really love is when the SWAT team are there and they're getting their asses kicked and he just, he's got the, the explosives and he puts the computer monitor on top of it and he's just like, take this under advisement, dickweed. Yeah. <laughs> just like, under his breath to himself, like reinforcing himself. It almost feels like he's just putting these little moments in just to reinforce the character and just make him like this normal guy. And it just, it comes with this real sense of like, he's scared and he masks that yeah. with comedy. I think it's really, really good and a really brave turn from Willis at this point in 88 to make an action hero who's not massively macho, but is also really funny. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he isn't every man cop, isn't he? He was meant to be relatable to the audience, which is definitely for the best. Although yeah. it did unfortunately mean that McTiernan and Silva couldn't get Arnold back in there after that predator. He wouldn't get through the air duct. Yeah, no, he wouldn't. <laughs> He'd sound more German than the terrorists. He would. Now I know what a buffet feels like. <laughs> and I mean, considering Bruce Willis' experience before this, which was a hit TV show and a flop rom-com called Blind Date, I think he's superb as McLean. Yeah, he's unreal. Leading an action film, it's not just about being able to act. It's just as much about how good you look performing the action. There's a certain like athleticism required, and Bruce Willis delivers on all of it. Like when he's running through the glass screaming or when he jumps off the building with the holes around his waist or the fight with Carl later on. In lesser hands, I think McLean could have been a bit on the nose. He's running around in a vest with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and no shoes on. It's yeah. ridiculous. It but Willis ridiculous. sells it <laughs> and I buy all of it. He does. He looks great in the action scenes. He looks good smoking. He can pull off a vest and he nails the one-liners. And when the dramatic moments do come, he's got the chops. Yeah. One of the very best yeah. leading man performances in an action film ever for yeah. me. When he's putting that horse on, he's like, Jesus Christ, John, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Please don't let me die. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's great. How did you get into this yeah, shit? How did you get into this shit? It's, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the setup for the character is is just wonderful. In 10 seconds of no dialogue when he's on that plane, you get that he's a married man on account of his wedding ring. And also how tense he is on that yeah. flight with him grabbing the armrest. So there's vulnerability on a few levels immediately. And then you've got that scene that he has with Powell in the bathroom. And this vulnerability that he shows just wasn't a thing in the action genre. I mean, yeah, you love this scene, don't you? You've mentioned it a couple of times. I love it. Schwarzenegger in Commando, his daughter's life is on the line. Similar situation. None of the depth of emotion. <laughs> Nothing like that. He's just doling out one line is like there's no tomorrow (laughs) but you totally buy it from willis because he's been the reluctant hero from the start he got invited to the christmas party by mistake who knew Mm -hmm. it's amazing and he's also not cut out of stone like the usual action star he's in good nick but a little soft around the edges yeah Yeah. totally appeals to the masses who could never dream of looking like sly or arnie Mm. And the fact that he does get hurt, his feet are cut to ribbons, which is why he reckons that he's not going to make it out of there alive, which is why he's talking to Powell. For audiences, we're able to put ourselves in that situation. You know, what will we do? I mean, you know, I'd probably piss me pants and give up. But... Yeah. <laughs> I'd be shot by Tony easily. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, Bruce Willis was a big star at the time of Die Hard, but not from films. He'd starred in the huge US TV hit Moonlighting yeah. alongside Sybil mm. Shepard since 1985. So there were other way more experienced movie actors up for the part of McLean before Willis came along. Have you heard any of those names? I mean, it'll be definitely John Travolta, Nick Cage, Chevy Chase, all Chevy of those guys. <laughs> He's always in there. <laughs> He's always in there. <laughs> well, apparently when Jeb Stewart penned the first draft of the film, the person he had in mind to play McLean was Richard Gere. Wow. So yeah, yeah, hide your hamsters. Then when Joel Silver came in, he wanted a big name, obviously. Clint Eastwood was apparently approached, but said that he didn't get the humour. And Paul Newman was apparently asked, but made a decision not to carry guns in films anymore. Yeah, the Tower and Inferno's a bit too close for Newman as well. Yeah, true. Just get some yeah, right dressing yeah. in there. He'd have been all over that. Yeah, of course he would have. <laughs> <laughs> and other rumoured names were Harrison Ford, Burt Reynolds, James Caan, and apparently Al Pacino which would have been ridiculous. Amazing. <laughs> in a vest. Al Pacino. <laughs> Yippee-ki-yay. That yippee would have been amazing, man. Oh, would have. <laughs> <laughs> and Bruce Willis later said, all of those guys would have been great John McLean's. As it turns out, if you think about John McLean now, you can't imagine anyone doing it but me. <laughs> so, Chris. He's right. He's dead right. He's right. <laughs> and the film itself, it's based on a novel called Nothing Lasts Forever, which is by Roderick Thorpe. Mm-hmm. It was a sequel to another Thorpe novel called The Detective, which had already been adapted for the silver screen in 1968 with Sinatra in the lead. Wow. Yep. And because of this, when 20th Century Fox decided to adapt Nothing Lasts Forever, they were contractually obliged to offer the part of John McLean to Frank Sinatra before anybody else. Wow. I mean, Ludicrous. <laughs> Ludicrous. Doobie dooby doo, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> You're selling it there, to be fair. I know. Yeah. I mean, Sinatra was already in his 70s at the time and he turned it down. Thankfully, he said, I'm too old and too rich. I mean, too old, surely, is the most important thing there. For <laughs> yeah. you. Don't care how rich you yeah, are. Yeah. You're just not equipped for the, for the role. Yeah, exactly. Sammy Davis Jr. as Powell. That would have been good as well. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> and Steve Niedersauza said, thank God Sonora passed, or the chasers around the building would have been on mobility scooters. <laughs> Imagine his toenails. He's 70. Oh! <laughs> How are you? Disgusting. <laughs> Joel Silva was on a flight and found himself sitting with an agent called Arnold Rifkin. Rifkin knew Silva was having trouble casting the lead on Die Hard, so put forward his own client, who happened to be Bruce Willis. Sure. He convinced Silva he was the right man for the part, but there were conflicts with the moonlighting schedule, so Willis couldn't do it. Then, Sybil Shepherd fell pregnant, meaning a window opened up for Willis to take the part. He said, if I had got Sybil Shepherd pregnant myself, I couldn't have planned it better. Amazing. That's a respectful thing to say about your co-star, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I don't think they got that. <laughs> yeah, so Willis was paid $5 million to play McLean, which was a huge amount for a TV star with one film under his belt. Yeah, massive. It caused quite a storm with Hollywood Studios. And I saw an interview with Alan Ladd Jr., the head of MGM at the time, who said, mm-hmm. what if Tom Selleck starts demanding $6 million? What's wrong with Selleck? <laughs> <laughs> Tell him no. <laughs> He's already lost Indiana Jones. Give the guy a break. <laughs> <laughs> On set, McTeenan had a, a problem or two with Willis when blocking scenes. Willis would spoil the shot by saying, I don't think John would stand here. He'd stand over there. And this continued for a for a while until Joel Silver confronted Willis and found out that he was concerned about his thinning hair. Huh. Right. The set was so well lit 
that he was concerned that the light would shine through his hair and highlight his baldness. I mean, it wouldn't be long before we got the signature bald Willis look, would it? No, no, no. he went for the full shave. Should he use that five million got a hair transplant like Wayne Rooney? Well, maybe not like Wayne Rooney. No, maybe not. Rooney. <laughs> <laughs> David Beckham. I didn't expect Rooney to come up on a Die Hard podcast. <laughs> also, Marilyn Vance, one of the production designers, she said there were 17 different versions of McLean's vest in like varying degrees of distress, right. which I think probably oh, yeah. explains why it seems to change from white to green from one scene to the next. I mean, it's quite <laughs> a jump for there to be 50, like 17 gradients. <laughs> it's, it's quite a jump. <laughs> To finish off on Bruce Willis as John McLean, we have our first Patreon question. So okay. one of the benefits of signing up as an ATRM Patreon on Patreon is that we'll answer your questions on the show. We have the first of those questions now, and it comes from Jacob Perry. Season's greetings, Jacob. Hello, Jacob. Hi, Jacob. So Jacob is asking, again, Battle of the Max Part 2, McCready versus McLean. Bare knuckle, no flamethrowers, no machine guns. Who wins? Oh, the Mac Daddy. Oof. So, yeah. So, on our One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest episode, Jacob asked who would win in a scrap, R.J. McCready from The Thing or R.P. McMurphy from Cuckoo's Nest. The winner then was McCready. How about McCready versus McLean, though, Westy? Oof. Um, I mean, this is a bit of a better pairing, isn't it? It's a bit yeah. fairer. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> One of them's not a complete fucking psychopath. Um, I don't know. I think this is a very, very even pairing for me, but I think the fact that McLean refuses to have a drink, he's a bit more on the level. I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one because they're both really good with weapons, but hand to hand, they're both pretty shit. So <laughs> I would I would actually put my money on McLean because I think he's just got a little bit more drive and a little bit more clarity. But ultimately, I think they would both just beat the shit out of each other and then just sit there and see what happens. Yeah, I think if it were with all the tools at their disposal in their respective films, it would be quite an even match. Yeah. But like Jacob says, if it's bare knuckle, skin on skin stripped of the waist, <laughs> to the death. It's got to be McLean for me. No contest. When he gets backed into a corner, he strikes with rapid ferocity like we see with Carl. I mean, McCready's a helicopter pilot. Yeah. McLean's a copper. Without the dynamite and the hat, McCready would have nothing against McLean's personal arsenal. Yeah. Just pulled out a peak edition of Wire Coat Hanger. Not going to happen, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a street fighter, McLean, isn't he? Yeah, he is. <laughs> No award recognition for Bruce Willis on Die Hard. It catapulted his career into the stratosphere, though, making him one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. And he returned as John McClane a further four times in Die Hard films. By the time of the final one, A Good Day to Die Hard, Willis was making a reported $25 million. Ooh, my God. So a great career for Bruce Willis. And this, the original Die Hard, still stands right up there among his best work. Oh, absolutely for me, yeah. The best. The antagonist to McLean's protagonist is Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman. Yeah. An East German terrorist turned thief, Gruber masterminds the takeover of the Nakatomi and attempts to steal $640 million in bearer bonds before falling to his death from the 30th floor of the building in the climax. Yeah. Mm. The benefits of a classical education, Look, <laughs> How's Hans and Alan Rickman? Yeah, I mean, Rickman, he just swooped onto the big screen and changed the game yeah. here. I mean, that shot of Hans emerging from the truck with his Euro trash yeah. crew behind him. Always in the middle. Brilliant. Wonderful. Yeah. 
Hands in pockets. Hands in hands. Hands, hands, hands in pockets. <laughs> <laughs> this ain't, I'm going to mention Commando again, but this ain't no Bennett from Commando. No, what is? No chainmail, no tash. <laughs> when he blows Takagi away, we now know who we're dealing with. Ruthless, emotionless, 100% focused on the job at hand, and nothing will get in the way of that. No. But then there are layers to hands. He doesn't just plug away at people for no reason. He even admits his feelings to Holly about the use of the bathroom for the hostages. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, he immediately sees that Holly is someone to keep an eye on because she's tough and she's whip smart. And he's such a cool customer. He's anticipated the involvement of the police and the FBI. He needs them as part of his master yeah. plan. And he's even one or two steps ahead of his henchmen on that score. Mm-hmm. And Rickman was perfect casting. Jackie Birch, take a mm-hmm. bow. Because perfect actor to pull off that with his kind of aloof Euro charm. Yeah. Magnificent. Yeah, I saw an interview with Rickman on the Die Hard set where he said, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not the villain. I'm yeah. just a guy who made certain choices. I mean, fine, but if those choices are to steal and murder people, you're definitely the villain. <laughs> <laughs> Check the brief. I mean, this type of bad guy, the kind of suave, well-spoken, well-dressed, sophisticated charmer with a black heart, that archetype's been around about as long as movies have, but it's never been done yeah. before or since, as well as Hans Gruber for me. No I love him as a villain. If mm. I was a German thug and Hans Gruber told me he had a foolproof plan to steal 600 million big ones, I'd definitely believe him. <laughs> Great dynamic between him and McLean too. They like two opposites. Yeah. And I like the relationship that he has with Holly as well. Especially the bit at the mm-hmm. end when Holly says, you're nothing but a common thief. And Hans scoots right up to her face and yeah. goes, I am an exceptional thief. He's definitely <laughs> practicing for the sheriff in Nottingham. Sheriff there, for Nottingham, Rickman. yeah. I knew you were going to say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just needs a call of Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but one of the great Hollywood films for me, Hans Gruber. Yeah, I mean, Rickman is just wonderful, wonderfully watchable. And you kind of root for him after you've seen it a fair few times. You just really fall in love with the guy. You fall in love with the character. I love the precision of the character. I love how intelligent he is. And watch when he goes in, he kind of owns the place and he touches mm-hmm. everything. The more you watch it, the more you think, was he just going to get out of this alone? Was he going to get everybody on the roof and blow it? And he was going to be the mm-hmm. only person driving out of here? You can't trust him with anything. It's just really, really, really well done. And I know I said earlier, when you turn the sound off and you can see what's going on, but with his performance, mm. when he goes from Bill Clay back to Gruber, oh. he doesn't even have to be in focus. And yeah. you know he's a character. That's how yeah, good his performance yeah. is. What yeah, a switch. You can't even see it, never mind hear it, and you know that that's fucking mm. Hans Gruber. He's back. Mm. That's how good the character is. And I mean, to be 42 year old and to break through at that age, and to deliver this and not seem like you don't, you don't watch it and go, he's clearly a stage actor now being put in a film. No. You just kind of go, where the fuck's mm. this guy been? And that for me, I really enjoyed. Yeah. And still do. Die Hard was actually Rickman's movie debut at 42. It's yeah. incredible. He made a name for himself on the stage as a RADA graduate and was looking to get into movies. Casting director Jackie Birch was aware of Rickman when she cast Red Heat. He auditioned for the part of a Russian heavy. I mean, to go from that to this is amazing. Cocaine on. (laughs) Birch didn't like him for Red Heat, but he was the first person she thought of when it came to Hans Gruber. But she had to teach Rickman how to hold a gun. Yeah. That's what he struggled with. He had a limp wrist, she said. A lover, not a fighter, Alan Rickman. Yeah. Of course he is. And he said that he was offered the part just two days after arriving in LA in 1987 and said, I'd never made a film before, but I was extremely cheap. (laughs) A bargain then. Absolute bargain. Yeah, yeah too, yeah, right? So you can tell that really adds to the character, the fact that he's not comfortable with the gun. Like I say, he's the brains over, over the brawn. He is, absolutely. Yeah. Rickman was sent the script and later said, I read it and said, what the hell is this? I'm not doing an action movie. 
He was convinced otherwise by his agent and said that the wit of the script and the progressive storyline and black characters won him over. Yeah, he didn't have much film experience, like we said, but Rickman said that he wasn't afraid of getting his opinion in there. He left a note, apparently, on Joel Silva's desk with two suggestions. He said Han should wear a suit rather than the full terrorist gear, and he said there should be a scene where he pretends to be a hostage. Nice. Brilliant. Silva replied and said, get the hell out of here, you'll wear what you're told. Keep the lights on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then Rickman was given the new script with those changes in. Amazing. Oh, brilliant. I mean, I don't know what he's talking about saying, what am I doing? I'm not going to do this. It's an action film. He's happy to be a nobody on a crap film like Red Heat. Yeah. But he doesn't want to be the best villain ever. Russian heavy number seven or something. (laughs) (laughs) Die Hard made Alan Rickman in Hollywood, and he went on to have a highly successful career, appearing in the likes of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and the Harry Potter series. Yeah. For us, though, his greatest bad guy remains Hans Gruber. Oh, 100%. 100%. That's our two leads in the film, and there's a memorable roster of secondary characters too. Two of the key ones play a role in helping out McLean in his wife Holly, played by Bonnie Bedelia, and Sergeant Al Powell, played by Reginald Vell Johnson. Yeah. We should talk about those as well, so who are you going for, Westy? I'm going for Bonnie Bedelia, who I think is just wonderful in this film. Pomona. Mm-hmm. Fucking great. <laughs> Pomona. Which <laughs> is just... To me, I haven't really seen her in anything else, not that I can remember, not off the top of my head, so she is just Holly McLean through and mm. through from this mm. and the second one. Really believable as John's wife, really believable as his high school sweetheart. I think they're perfectly cast as a couple. You can see them as a couple. I think their chemistry is really, really excellent. She's got this wonderful emotional side. She's got this real maternal side. You can see she's a mother and she really cares about people. She's really believable yeah. with from that emotional side, but she doesn't seem soft. She's got this hardness, which is really, again, it's really refreshing for this time. She's not just yeah. screaming and running about the place and saying, John! It's just her little <laughs> quips about him. She's like, he's still alive. Only John can make somebody that pissed off. Do you know what I mean? Just them little quips are excellent <laughs> to show that they're kind of on a par. And her arc for me is one of the most interesting because she's got to learn to understand where John's coming from. She's a success and he's not, but she's got to understand that he's really fucking good at his job. But you absolutely 100% buy that she could be president of that company and she could hold her own in a meeting. Yeah. You totally, totally get 100%. it. Power hair, power suit. She's got that performance. <laughs> great, great performance from Body Bedelia. And if she was given a little bit more time, she could take that Rolex off herself. I don't really think she needs John. And she's just that strong of a character. She's excellent. Yeah, yeah. I don't really know Bonnie Bedelia from anything other than Die Hard either. But this was the 15th feature yeah. film she'd been in. She'd been in They Shoot Horses, Don't They, and Heart Like a Wheel. So lots of experience yeah. at the time. Yeah. And that shows because I think her acting skill is beyond question. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. In not that many scenes, she makes Holly feel like a living, breathing person to me. Mm-hmm. Excellent actress with very good dramatic chops. And she adds a lot of like much-needed, grounded weight to the film. I think she's great all the mm-hmm. way through. Also, did you know that Bonnie Bedelia's full name is Bonnie Bedelia Culkin? And she is the aunt of Macaulay Culkin. Oh, well, there you are. Yeah. I wonder. Mm, it's definitely family. a Christmas film. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a similar concept as well, Home Alone. So be a crossover there, surely. Oh, yeah. Exactly the same. <laughs> Pain can slapping in the hands of his face. <laughs> Bruce Willis was already cast when they were looking for an actress for the part of Holly. And it was Willis's idea to cast Bonnie oh, Bedelia nice. because he'd seen her in Heart Like a Wheel and said she would bring heart, warmth and strength yeah. to the role. But she was incredibly surprised to be approached by Joel Silver about the role. Yeah. I mean, he was right, Bruce Willis. 
but I just can't believe him and Silva didn't go over some 21-year-old blonde, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) They did for every other female in the film, and he looks at them all. (laughs) He does look at them all. California. (laughs) Well, I'm going for John's other muse in the film, and that is Sergeant Al Powell, played by Reggie Vell Johnson. Yeah, lovely. I mean, God bless Al Powell. (laughs) A lovely man. Yeah, he's wonderful. He's a sweetheart. He's just a a flat-footed death jockey who's got roped into something way above his pay grade. But he really turns out to be the most effective person on the outside. Johnson and Johnson get blown to smithereens because of their gung-ho approach. Dwayne T. Robinson is a bootlicker, but thinks he's a big shot, which leaves Powell. I really love that moment after Ellis is killed and Powell is arguing with Dwayne and Hans gets on the radio, attention, police. And Powell picks it up and he's full of confidence. And he says, this is Sergeant Al Powell, before Dwayne snatches it from him and timidly introduces himself over the radio. Just that little moment shows where both of these characters are in this situation. And Powell is thriving. I love that. Yeah, they're going after the lights. (laughs) (laughs) And Powell builds up enough warmth and trust with McLean to get him through relatively unscathed. He's basically coaching him through the trauma of it all. If he didn't give John the pep talks and wasn't a friendly voice at the end of the radio talking about Twinkies, I mean, I imagine John's spirit would have probably broken. He's near as damn it in that bathroom scene. And the character, I mean, nobody dislikes him. And that's no. because of Vel Johnson. He's got so much on-screen warmth. It's, a, it's I love, really love. You can't get enough of this performance. Not at all. Yeah, the character of Powell, I think, is a brilliant idea. Giving us someone on the outside gives McLean a link to the outside world and there's a perfect outlet for exposition and backstory where McLean can just yeah. pour his heart out of Powell yeah. about what he thinks Hans is up to or his history with Holly and it's all totally believable. Mm-hmm. And he is a good source of humour, especially in the scenes with Deputy Police Chief Dwayne T. Robinson, played by Paul Gleason. <laughs> the funniest line in the film to me is where Powell's telling Robinson he thinks McLean's a policeman because he made a comment about spotting a phony ID and Dwayne's like, yeah. Christ, Powell, he could be a fucking bartender. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> Which Willis was, wasn't he, before Moonlighting? Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, good performance from Reginald Vell Johnson and I think an excellent character. Caston Powell was an area where John McTiernan and Jackie Birch didn't agree at all. McTiernan wanted Bobby Duval as Powell. Wow. Vell Johnson later said that Gene Hackman had been cast, but had to pull out due to scheduling conflicts. Blame and Jackie Birch said McTiernan was also interested in Lawrence Fishburne, which I can see. Great. She wanted to cast an unknown, though, specifically Reginald Val Johnson. And she said to McTiernan and Silver, he's the nicest man you'll ever meet, and you need him just the way Bonnie Bedelia is as an asset for Bruce, which is fucking spot on. It is. That's why she's a casting director. Yeah. Too, right? Yeah. He's the nicest man you'll ever know. <laughs> that comes across as well, doesn't it? I love it? that. I bet he's a fucking legend. Yeah, Jackie Birch said that casting Die Hard, John McTiernan was her least favourite director to work with, like ever. Right, right. She said that he would hold auditions, him and his wife, and they would turn down actors or actresses for reasons like they didn't like their eyebrows. What? And Birch what? had to go to Joel Silver about it, and it ended up being her and Silver who did most of the casting. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can change eyebrows. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's all right. (laughs) I should have Roger Moore auditioned. His eyebrows. (laughs) Get out. (laughs) Two caterpillars shagging on his forehead. (laughs) Before Die Hard, Vell Johnson had minor roles in other films, obviously. We know him as the corrections officer in Ghostbusters, basically the same guy (laughs) as he is here. (laughs) He was living in his mother's basement at the time and desperate for any acting gig. At the start of his audition tape, he said, I'm not sure you're going to give me this role, but if you do, 
I'll give you the best performance you could ever hope for. <laughs> if that's okay. <laughs> He's lucky the tape didn't just get turned off at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Who's this loser? Yeah. <laughs> But when he did get the part, he went on ride-alongs with real police officers for first-hand experience. I think that's wasted time, to be quite honest. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't do that in the film. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Not at all. No, just by himself. Should have just eaten lots of Twinkies. Just yeah. talk on walkie-talkies for a bit. Would it be like the hard way, wouldn't it, with Jay Fox and Woods? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. As well as a lot of prep for the role, Val Johnson also did some of his own stunts. Believe that. <laughs> <laughs> He actually talked on the radio. <laughs> he actually ate Twinkies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the moment where Powell arrives on the scene and is being shot at and reverses his car and crashes over the wall, Reginald Bell Johnson filmed that himself. Wow, brilliant. Also, when they were filming the bathroom scene, this is lovely, when they filmed the bathroom scene where McLean and Powell have a heart-to-heart, your favourite look, yeah. Willis was struggling with the dialogue and asked if Val Johnson could come to the set. So Val Johnson wasn't due to start filming yet, but flew in from New York especially just to be in the room with Willis for that scene. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, I'm sure he was fearful of just being canned so that he would just do anything. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll give you the best performance you've ever seen immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I'll come now. Yeah, he said they thought it was a bit strange to be asked that, but he just wanted to please everyone on the set. Yeah. Right. And Reginald Vell Johnson also said that when his mother saw him in the film, she cried and he bought her a house and a car with the money he made. Oh, Christ. Does it get any better? As if I couldn't love him anymore. I know, right? So, yeah, maybe he is the nicest man you'll ever meet. Yeah. <laughs> there are yet more cast members worth mentioning in Die Hard. We're going to talk about Hart Bokhnaz, Ellis, and Alexander Godinova's Carl Resky shortly. And also, I think William Atherton gives a good turn as the slimy reporter Richard Thornburg. Yeah. Brilliant. William Atherton as William Atherton. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Stephen Nita Souza said that William Atherton was the go to asshole in Hollywood at the time. <laughs> yeah, and he's so good at it. <laughs> it's amazing. In our main cast, though, Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Bonnie Bedelia, and Reginald Lavelle Johnson, some iconic performances. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So memorable, them. everybody. Mm hmm. This episode of All The Right Movies is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is, therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now, you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about, it's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And, special offer to all the Right Movies listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash A-T-R-M. That's betterhelp.com slash A-T-R-M. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. The Middle Into the middle of Die Hard, the film starts to show why it has its reputation with wall-to-wall action coming thick and fast, and we've got some huge moments to talk about. Oh, yeah. 
the scenes where Hans meets Ellis then comes face to face with McLean are coming. But first, it's a couple of huge set pieces. It is. Yes, it is. So with McLean having killed Tony and then attracted the attention of the LAPD, LA's finest turn up and find themselves right in the thick of it. Mm. The following sequences bring us Sergeant Al Powell's entrance into the film and the LAPD SWAT team steaming into the Nakatomi like a quarterback and becoming toast. Nice. <laughs> Welcome to the party, Luke. Oh, yes. Yeah, I love it when Powell shows up in Nakatomi. McLean yeah. thinks this is his saviour, the guy who's been buying so many Twinkies that he has to balance them <laughs> under his chin. <laughs> and when he gets there, Al's naturally going to be taken in by Eddie's southern charm, complete with his cowboy boots. Evening, yeah, officer, yeah. what can I do for you? Yeah, he loves it. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Al will swallow anything to get home for his pregnant wife at Christmas. And, and Eddie's completely believable, Dennis Hayden. As the guy yep. who couldn't give a shit, he's stuck alone. 50 bucks on the game. <laughs> 50 bucks on these dead holes. <laughs> yeah, help yourself. Yeah, I like the bit where upstairs, Marco comes blazing into the room and is chasing McLean as he snakes under the table. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And I think he should have worked on his aim because he's specifically shooting where McLean isn't. Lefts and yeah. rights all over the place. Just <laughs> yeah. shoot the table. No more table. Where you going, pal? Yeah. Great visual effect, though. The guy who gets hit before Marco turns up. That, when the bits of his body are coming off. Yeah, it's great. I absolutely love that. But it's the coolest when McLean ices Marco. Yeah. Next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. Thanks for the yeah. advice. Pow, pow, pow. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's been reported that John McTiernan used extra loud blanks in the gun on set to create a more realistic sound, and it's massive. It's deafening the sound. It is, yeah. And that caused a problem for Willis in this scene. The gun went off close to his face about seven or eight times every take, and Willis said that he was left permanently 75% deaf in his left ear as a result. 75%? Wow. Jesus. Crazy. And then at the end of this scene, can you imagine being in Al's shoes? He's got his Christmas spring in his step. He's singing a song when he's leaving the building. Then from nowhere, a body comes falling from the sky. And his reaction mm. is totally believable because he would hightail it the hell out of there, yeah. even in reverse. It's the most simplest of lyrics. And he goes, dum de dum delightful. Yeah. <laughs> 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 We've got that shot of Argyle having a great time on the phone. That's hilarious. Yeah. And then McLean's welcome to the party, pal. One of the most memorable lines in the film. And yeah. more recently, yeah. catnip for meme enthusiasts around the world. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, the way Powell turns up and the terrorists think they're getting away with it until McLean drops the corpse of Marco on the Powell squad car and then all hell instantly breaks loose. That's just brilliant. It's great. There's another really good example here of McLean handling the shifting tones when he cuts from Powell reversing the car to that shot of Argyle, the oh, chauffeur, wow. yeah. getting smashed in the limo and then back again. And it's seamless. <laughs> There's a couple of nice touches with that shot as well of Argyle. Have you noticed that as Powell drives over the wall and we see it through Argyle's rear window, Marco's corpse is hurled from the car. All right. Oh, really? I, I missed that. Right, nice. Yeah. And when Powell arrives at the Nakatomi and doesn't spot anything, McLean says, who's driving this car? Stevie Wonder? Yeah. And then nice. we cut to Argyle in the limo. He's listening to Stevie Wonder. Yeah, it's skeletons, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. got sunglasses on as well at that <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, he's got sunnies yeah. on. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It's like pitch black. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm going to go for a bit where, where it gets heightened yet again. I mean, every action sequences just piles on top it's like lego isn't it it's fantastic uh-huh. it's when the swat team enter 
and you think, here we go. But you don't believe it for a second. They turn up. You don't feel any relief whatsoever. No. Because you're <laughs> just completely on McLean's side and his performance here. Macho assholes. No, no. And he's just <laughs> he knows for a fact that they're absolutely done for. And it's Dwayne's response here. I cringe every time when he says, kick ass. Absolutely. <laughs> just go, oh, no. That's fucking so cringe, man. You can't pull that off. No, you can't at all. And that other guy is just sending the car. Sending the, the car. car. So cocky. They're almost it's, in. Yeah, it's just this real gung-ho, like, USA bravado, we can do anything. And what is excellent in this sequence is the music mm, yeah, and how it's just there. Your firepower is so loud, you can't hear the score. Mm. It's just, but it's there and it builds and it's like this brooding thing underneath and you can kind of feel it. And I think that's just wonderful and McLean's got to solve the problem. He's got to just go, right, well, I've got to do something about it. And that would be the last thing I would think of. I would think I'm going to kill everybody if I push this out down an elevator shaft. I don't know where (laughs) it's going to blow up. I don't know how much explosive I've got. I don't know what the fuck's going on. I don't know what's going through his head. But when it works, it really does work. Yeah. It's wonderful. Take this under advisement, dickweed. Again, amazing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's brilliant when one of the SWAT team guys gets stung by that rose thorn. Yeah. Oh. I mean, that's the color yeah. of the guys that were sending in. No wonder they get wiped out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a great touch, that. Yeah, it is. Yeah, in a film full of brilliant action scenes, this one might be my favorite. Yeah. I always like the U.S. line when the SWAT team come in where he's like, "Twas the night before Christmas, yeah. not a creature was stirring, except the four assholes coming in the rear in standard two-by-two cover formation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a great turn from Clarence Gillard Jr. This like, the quarterback is toast. <laughs> yeah, he's really good. brilliant. <laughs> that shot of the RV like rolling towards the Nakatomi is brilliant. Yeah. And there's some excellent main job work throughout the film, and one of the best uses of it is here, when McLean blows the building and we get that shot from outside the building yeah. of, like, oh. several explosions going off. Yeah. That's a miniature. It looks totally real it's huge. to me. It does. Yeah. Again, Dwayne is rubbish, where he doesn't even know what's going on when they start shooting at the lights. <laughs> How did he get that job? <laughs> <laughs> They're shooting at them. It's panic fire. They can't see anything. It's just great. Feel again. But it's like, the police have themselves an RV. He's, like, he's excited yeah. about it. Wonderful yeah. stuff. Yeah, in that scene when the tank is hit with the rocket launcher, a false railing was added that the tank crushes and boards were painted to look like stone flooring. And a fake missile was fired down a piano wire from the tank to the building and the wire was covered in acid so it didn't show on camera. Looks amazing. Yeah. And they did a load of takes, but the tank withstood every single one of them. <laughs> really? Fired by Vico. (laughs) (laughs) It does look brilliant, that shot. I love it when Hans is like, hit it again. Yeah. Yeah. And this isn't gun or explosion poured. Well, I mean, it is, obviously. Obviously, it is. It isn't just that. It's all so well put together, so well shot. There's a definite craft to what's going on as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Incredible stuff. Staging of the action scenes. Throughout are amazing. Superb. The moment McLean creates the C4 fireball obviously couldn't be done on an actual 30-story elevator shaft. So Richard Edland and his crew created a 23-foot-high replica. I mean, that's still pretty big. Massive. <laughs> they tapered to the ground to create the illusion that it was the actual size. The top was 4 feet by 6 feet, and the bottom was nine, well, 6 by 9 inches. Right. Tiny lights and pipe work were added, and every elevator door and shaft were hand-painted to scale. You just can't tell. You can't. It looks incredible. Yeah. And then to create the shot of the flames rushing up the shaft, they filmed it at a lower frame rate and then sped it up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the shot where it blasts out the elevator and McLean kind of dies for cover, that was done by recreating the set as a scale model. It all looks just perfect. Oh I've, God, I've yeah. never questioned any of it. Nah. 
I mean, would a New York beat cop know how to fashion a makeshift fireball bomb from a computer monitor and office chair? Maybe not, but it's glorious. Yeah, of it course, is it is. Glorious. Of course it is. <laughs> don't know how it works, don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all going off with the Nakatomi explosions and gunfire, and it's all pretty good. Oh, that's fantastic. It's all amazing. Yeah, too right. In the middle of all the carnage and destruction, Die Hard also has time for some memorable character scenes. Two of the biggest revolve around Hans, firstly when he's visited by Office Yuppie and Cokehead Harry Ellis, and then when he finally comes face to face with McLean. Mm-hmm. Luke, Sprechensy talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, well I'm going to talk about the very best here. The moment where Ellis and Hans finally meet. I love that he has a couple of toots. Just G himself up before he goes into the battle in the boardroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Because Ellis is the epitome of the 80s high-powered big business yuppie who thinks that he can baffle people with words and a fountain pen. Yeah. Yeah. The moment where Carl gestures to his gun as Ellis is introducing himself is one of the greatest subtle moments in the film. Yeah. Should we just whack this guy out now mm, and save yeah. ourselves a problem? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Ellis gets his 60 minutes and he thinks he's got it all sewn up. He gives Carl a little nudge and he says, the guy upstairs is fucking things up, huh? <laughs> <laughs> he's got his can of pop. He's got Hans's attention. He thinks he's got it made. Yeah. Hey, Jan boy. It's wonderful that he's got yeah. coke and he's taken coke and he's probably asked for a coke and they yeah. give him a different yeah, kind of coke. Great. I love it, man. It's fucking excellent. It's brilliant. But he completely underestimated Hans's absolute drive to get what he wants. Yeah. And if that means killing Ellis and cold blood over the radio waves to root McLean out, well, it's just a no-brainer. Yeah. It's such a highlight, this scene. It's incredible. It is, but Ellis is a total tool. Ah, oh, he's amazing. I can't abide him, especially when he's like, stop messing up the works, capiche? Oh, <laughs> and It's just the look he gives Hans with his eyebrows go up. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and unlike Takagi, who seems a nice man, I'm perfectly happy to see Ellis get shot in the face. Yeah. <laughs> the way the whole scene's put together, though, like a three-way conversation between Ellis, McLean, and Hans, I think is excellent. Mm-hmm. It gives Bruce Willis a chance to flex some of his more dramatic acting muscles, and he delivers. Really good when he says to Hans, he doesn't know what kind of man you are, but I do. Yeah. Mm. But as much as I love this scene, it does expose a plot hole in the film. After Hans kills Ellis, he says to McLean, give me my detonators or I kill another hostage. I mean, why doesn't he? That's definitely what Hans would do. And McLean would have to give himself up. He'd have no choice. It's the only flaw in the plot for me, which is a shame. But the scene with Ellis is really good. I mean, if anybody wants to put somebody off doing drugs, forget that Green Hill song. Just show them Ellis and Die Hard. Yeah, the yeah. Complete two. <laughs> Just say no. <laughs> yeah, the actor who played Ellis was Hart Bockner, and he improvised loads here in this scene. He came yeah. up with the line where he says, Hans, Booby, I'm your white knight. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> <He> said that, <laughs> to me, I mean, one of the best. <laughs> Brilliant. He said that he thought it would be fun to throw a little Yiddish in there for good measure. <laughs> yeah, it was Hart Bockner's idea to make Ellis funny. And he said that after his first few takes, McTiernan came up to him and said, I don't know what you think you're doing, but I hate it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> think Cary Grant, is what McTiernan said. Oh, right. terrible. <laughs> but unfortunately for McTiernan, Joel Silver thought Ellis was hilarious. So we told Bockner to keep on doing it. Yeah, he probably seemed very familiar to Joel Silver, I would have thought. <laughs> yeah. The kind of people he deals with. Yeah. <laughs> I can deal with this Euro trash. <laughs> <laughs> Before we move on from Ellis, we have our second Patreon question, and it's about Ellis. All right. Yes. It comes from Eamon Keating. Merry Christmas, Eamon. Hi, Eamon. Hi, Eamon. And Eamon's asking, is Ellis the greatest depiction of an 80s douchebag guy ever? Oof. Oh, yeah. So 
Yes, is my answer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> what do you think, Rusty? I think there's a few. I don't want to step on Luke's toes here, but I've got a few, and we might be crossing swords, but we shall see. We've got <laughs> Carter Burke from Aliens, obviously. Piece of shit. Swords crossed. Yep. Uh, William Atherton <laughs> is William Atherton, and he's in here as well, so you've got two for one. Brilliant. And for me, though... You're going to say the same person that I'm thinking of here, Westy. Do you reckon? Right, okay. Yeah. Do you want to say it at the same time after three? <laughs> okay. Right. One, two, three. Chet Bryce Donnelly. Collins. Ah. <laughs> Bryce Cummins, as if anyone said that. <laughs> I'm going for Bill Paxton in Weird Science is Chet Donnelly. Piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, as it's Christmas, you just cannot go far wrong with John Glover, who plays Bryce Cummins in Scrooge. Yeah. It's a bad colour for New York. <laughs> oh, blue. Um, <laughs> he's an earlier slime ball, but he's just the epitome of corporate 80s America with his conscientious diet, as he's got the California health plate, and his paper thin business talk. There is no I in T E A M. Awful. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. I mean, Ellis, he's almost certainly top of the pile for me. He's right up there for sure. Mm hmm. I'm going to go for my favourite meeting of two characters in this film. Probably everyone's favourite meeting of two characters in this film is when McLean runs into Hans and Hans says he's Bill Clay. Now, this <laughs> is beautiful on every level. The way Jan de Bond shoots this, the way McTiernan shoots this, it's Dutch angles from the start. Oh, yeah. All the way through. It's not just subtle. It it's very, very much in your face. And it shouldn't work, but it definitely does. And what Willis does, he turns McLean into this stereotypical hard cop which he isn't. Mm. He kind of plays yeah. the role of what Hans expects him to be like. Yeah, a bit of bravado. Yeah, and we don't know if McLean knows straight away. And I've always been fascinated by the performances that they both give here. I think it's just a really wonderful moment in the film that could really make it sag. It needs to have that level of tension, and it really does. And like I said before, when he turns back into Hans Gruber and he's out of focus and he's just talking on the radio and that gun comes down, but no bullets! Like, take a fucking stupid <laughs> hand. And then Brilliant. again, there's that ding of the elevator. Every time that elevator dings, something terrible happens and it gets progressively <laughs> worse. But I think, yeah, this sequence, the way that it's shot, the way that it's acted, it's an absolute masterclass in visual storytelling and in acting and in writing. It all comes together for me in the middle of an action film where it should really sag it really doesn't. I agree. I think it's excellent. I mean, I Alan Rickman is brilliant as Hans. I love him as Hans. But his American accent as Bill Clay is not good. Nah, should be on fucking TV with that accent. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about this scene, though, is that we're with Hans. He's checking on the explosives. And then he comes across McLean, like, from nowhere. Yeah. We get a shot of McLean from Hans' POV. And because we've not seen McLean for a bit... We're not expecting the same, and we don't know how he got there. So it's the only time in the film where we see McLean, how Hans and his crew see him. This kind of enigma who just shows up. Yeah, yeah. And seeing him in that light, he looks crazy. Yeah. Scruffy, smoking nutter yeah, with a gun. Yeah. He looks terrifying. <laughs> I had to get out of there. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> and the whole action scene that follows where Hans is like, shoot the glass. How intense is that? Oh, it's, it's amazing. Mad. Yeah. There must be 500 shots fired in that scene alone. Yeah, yeah. it's great. I know they spent $130,000 just on glass, but again, 
they've earned the gun pawn with the great character moment just before between McLean mm. and Hans. Yeah. And with there being so much grass on the floor, if you watch carefully, we do see a couple of shots where Bruce Willis is clearly wearing like the fake silicone hobbit feet that yeah, he wore yeah. for safety. The little yeah. booties. Yeah, you see yeah. that you see that later on as well when he jumps <laughs> from the helicopter. But again, great writing, great foreshadowing because in the in the scene just before this, McLean says, Glass, who gives a shit about glass? Now he yeah, gives a shit about yeah, it. Yeah, lovely. So lovely. it's really nice. Yeah. There's loads yeah. of that if you look for it. It's amazing. Yeah. The writer, Stephen E. D'Souza, knew that they needed a scene before the climax where McLean and Hans meet each other, but couldn't quite figure out how to get them into a scene together. He'd heard from the crew that Rickman could do a great California accent, which obviously he was lied to about. <laughs> so <laughs> so he, he had the idea of this scene. He'd already written it between McLean and Theo, but swapped Theo out for Hans. No, much well, better. Charm. Much better. Would have been good with Theo as well, but yeah, it's got to be Hans. It's got to yeah, be Hans. Of course it has. They got a bit lucky because the scene where Hans shoots Takagi was scheduled to be shot the next day after this one. Obviously, McLean's outside the room on that scene, so this gave McTiernan the chance to change around a bit. So the McLean's there, but doesn't actually see Hans. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would have been one hell of a plot hole if they missed that. <laughs> Huge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't recognise the guy who's watched him shoot someone in the face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> McLean finds out who Hans is when he realises Bill Clay is a name on the directory board. And if you look carefully, there's some other familiar names on there too. D'Souza, D'Agovia and DeBont are all on there. Stephen A. D'Souza was the writer, Jackson D'Agovia was the production designer, and John DeBont was the director of photography. Can't believe they didn't get Joel Silver in there. That would have been awesome. <laughs> the board's not big enough. <laughs> Every name, Joel Silver, Joel Silver, Bill Clay, Joel Silver, Silver, Joel Silver. <laughs> like Blazing Saddles. <laughs> silver, 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 Silver. <laughs> and the moment where Hans jumps down and lands at McLean's feet, Rickman felt a crack in his knee when he landed, and he went to the hospital and was told that it was either a torn ligament, which would have meant that he would have been out of the film, right. or a torn Oof. cartilage, which would repair quickly. Right. So you'd still be in there. Luckily, it turned out to be a torn cartilage, but he was injured for a couple of days on set. And shooting a scene where Hans has a cigarette with McLean, Rickman was on crutches and in plaster. Wow. And Joel Silver told him to lose the crutches. So the moment where he's pointing the gun at McLean, Rickman's standing on one leg. Oh, wow. Great balance. <laughs> Even better. He is leaned up yeah. against the wall quite a bit in that scene, isn't he, when he's smoking? I he guess is. that's why, yeah. 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 Doesn't give a toss, Silver, does he? Kicking people's crutches away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get rid of that shit. You don't need that. So Rickman should know about 42. You don't go jumping off anything. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the end of the middle. The tension's been ramped up. The action's been ramped up. The stakes have been ramped up. Only the FBI can sort this mess out, surely. Surely they can. No relation. The FBI. The crew. So there may have been the relatively inexperienced team in front of the cameras on Die Hard, not so behind the cameras. We're going to be talking about the contributions made by composer Michael Kamen and director of photography Jan de Bon shortly, but we're going to start with the screenplay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the credited writers of Die Hard are Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. DeSouza. Die Hard was Stewart's first ever screenplay. Not the case with DeSouza, it was his seventh screenplay. Before this, his credits included 48 Hours, Commando, and The Running Man. Right. A slightly peculiar writing combo here then. Very much. But how was the writing on Die Hard? Yeah, I think the writing on Die Hard is superb. It stands head and shoulders above practically anything in the genre in terms of writing for me. Yeah, And the standout for me is the subtle story beats. In the genre, there are often those kind of light bulb moments that feel forced and obvious, but I really don't get that here. There are these very subtle moments that are very important for the narrative later on. 
Like, for example, when Holly is pissed off that John hasn't been in touch and in her fury near the start, she slams the family photo down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A natural step for that character to take. But that photograph is pivotal later for Hans. Hmm. And then when John arrives at Nakatomi and tells Takagi that he's got quite a place here, and he says it will be, we've still got several floors under construction. Yeah. A great setup for when John is hiding out upstairs. Mm-hmm. Just one line of natural dialogue sorts all of that out yeah. without being too forced. Great exposition, yeah. It really flows without those sledgehammer moments that force your attention to a particular beat. Yeah. And I think this has helped the film's longevity. You really do get rewarded with repeat viewings, mm. particularly with the complexities of Hans's master plan near the end. Yeah. Because it is quite complex. It is. Yeah. But repeat viewings really, really highlight mm. what's going on in the writing. Yeah, I mean, it's an action film. It's not a biopic or a character study, so it's not the most thematically rich or deep piece of writing you'll ever see. But Mm. for what it is, a big action blockbuster, I think it's pretty much a masterclass in how to write that kind of film. I agree. I mean, the concept, lone every man trapped in a confined location with a load of bad guys, that's now a classic action subgenre of its own. So Mm -hmm. really influential. I mentioned the plot hole around the hostages earlier, yeah. but aside from that, I think the plotting is excellent. Yeah. Mm. The perils ramped up bit by bit, and the action beats when they come are character-driven and inventive, like McLean jumping off the building with a fire hose around his waist. Great idea. Yeah. Hmm. And a part of the writing I think makes Die Hard stand out from its many imitators is the character writing. Yeah, very much. Specifically the dynamics between the characters. All the characters have their own individual relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. McLean has a relationship with Holly, with Hans, with Powell, with Carl. They're all very different and mostly used to drive different types of conflict. And they're all used to drive the narrative. The personal vendetta between Carl and McLean is a brilliant addition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The buddy cop type relationship between Powell and McLean is a brilliant addition. And those dynamics to me give Die Hard such a like a richness in the writing beyond 99% of action films. And there's some great comic lines as well. I like it when the FBI first turn up and Dwayne's all over them. He's straightening his jacket before he walks <laughs> over and Powell's like, want a breath mint? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, very good writing. Excellent, I think, for this kind of film. Yeah. And when you were saying there about characters as well, you can kind of tell how each character would interact with another one, even if they don't necessarily do that. You know how Hollywood talk to Carl? Yeah. You know, you know how mm. Carl would talk to Powell? Mm. What I really love about this is the clarity and the simplicity. And it does seem like it's a very complicated plot, but it's super easy to follow, which makes it even more enjoyable. Mm. But what they've done with that is they've foreshadowed almost everything has a double beat in this film. That the start, you've got even something very subtle like McLean. He should be in the back of the limo, but he's in the front. When Dwayne turns up, he's in the back of the car when he should be in the front. Yeah, nice. And it's just right. these yeah, little yeah. subtle things where you go, well, he's in the wrong place. He's in the right place. Just that little speech on the plane where the guy gives him make fist with your toes, that gives him the motivation yeah, to not have right. any shoes yeah. later on. That's brilliant. Little things like the, the Twinkies, and Al's buying them, and you think, well, what's he buying Twinkies for? And that's all that McLean gets to eat. That's the only mm-hmm. thing that powers him through. And he's like, you know, it's a 20-year-old Twinkie. But they, they bond over that. Al, when he's talking about his wife's pregnant, there's a kid on the way, and the fact that he killed a kid. Mm-hmm. And there's that retribution to the character mm-hmm. and then layers yeah. there. There's the Rolex that gets introduced by Ellis and the Rolex is what kills hands at the end. Show him the watch. Yeah. I'm sure I'll see it later. He definitely yeah. sees it later. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and then like Luke said, that photograph that gets put down and that's ultimately what gets Holly in trouble at the end. The fact that she's yeah. ignored her relationship with John Hans sees that. And then that's the retribution that comes from that. And that is just a few examples in this film. And there's many, many more. And that's how deep layered and clear the writing is. So I urge anyone just to watch this another 200 times and see how many <laughs> you can actually pick out because it's like a perfect lasagna. 
<laughs> Clear lasagna for you, was it? Oh, I always. See through. See through. I don't cook it properly, I don't think. No, you can clearly see the layers. That's what I'm getting at. Die Hard's based on Nothing Lasts Forever, we mentioned before by Roderick Thorpe, which was published in 1979. From producing The Detective with Frank Sinatra, 20th Century Fox had the rights to Nothing Lasts Forever before Thorpe even wrote it. Yeah. Well, Jeb Stewart had written a spec script which was picked up by Columbia but then dropped in 1987, leaving him desperate for another writing gig. His agent managed to get him the job adapting Nothing Lasts Forever, and Stewart said, I would have taken the Dead Sea Scrolls if they offered it to me. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck adapting those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Jeb Stewart at the time apparently was working as a tennis pro when he got given the Nothing Lasts Forever gig. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. Brilliant. Let's get Tim Hammond on the phone. See if he's got any ideas. <laughs> Come on, Tim. <laughs> Something really stuffy, no doubt. <laughs> Henman's your example. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> and you're a fan of that sport as well, John. I know you that. love it. <laughs> Stuart liked the book, but he was struggling to crack the story, as he put it. He said the book was nihilistic, but he'd been briefed to write a summer blockbuster, so he was kind of like at odds. Then one night, he got into a fight over a trivial matter with his wife and stormed out into his car. And he was on LA's Ventura Freeway and not paying attention to where he was going. He drove over an empty fridge box at 65 miles an hour. Wow. And when he pulled over by the side of the road, he said, I suddenly knew what nothing lasts forever was. The guy has to say sorry and save his wife. Yeah, Stuart tells this story as if it's like a near-death experience. He drove over a cardboard box. It's an empty cardboard <laughs> box. <laughs> and he also said that once he had the idea, he threw himself into the script and forgot to call his wife and apologize like he meant to. Right. And he said, uh-huh. she was very angry. Yeah, <laughs> of course she was. <laughs> and when Joel Silver was brought in, Stuart said that Silver gave him a key bit of feedback. At some point in the film, the top of the building has to blow up. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, Stuart said that he argued that if the top of the building blew up, it would be like almost a failure for McLean. Mm. And Silva said, "That's not my problem. I'm not <laughs> going to make someone pay twelve dollars for a movie ticket and stand in the rain for two hours outside the theater, and then the top of the fucking building doesn't blow." Up. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Who was Silver. standing in the rain for two hours to watch Die Hard? <laughs> and the second unit director in the film was called Bo Marx, and I saw an interview with him where he said Joel Silva greenlit the script because, in his words, it. Gave him a hard on. Well, I mean, wow, that's way too much info. And which bit? <laughs> I can think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As well as making changes to the script, Joel Silver instantly replaced Jeb Stewart as the writer. He said to him, This is great. It's nothing personal, but you're fired. This has nothing to do with the script. I love the script, but I don't know you. I've got to make a movie and I've got to make it fast. Instead, he brought in Stephen E. DeSouza, who Silver worked with on 48 Hours Commando and Jumping Jack Flash. Yeah, Stuart said that he was devastated when he was fired, as he would be. And Stephen E. de Souza was briefed with lightening the script up. And he said, Jeb's a really good writer, but he isn't as funny as me. (laughs) (laughs) Silver said, it's nothing personal, but you're fired. It's nothing to do with the script. I just don't know you. That is really personal. That is really personal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So de Souza added in the ho, ho, ho to Tony's sweatshirt after McLean kills him. Right. Yeah. He added more wisecracks, like McLean saying, no fucking shit, lady, do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Yeah. And he added all the cowboy references, like Roy Rogers, John Wayne, Gary Cooper. Yeah. All changes for the better. Yeah. Turns out that he is funnier than Jeff Stewart as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sousa also made changes around the character of Powell. He removed a scene in a police station where Powell has made the butt of some cruel jokes about being very deadly with a handgun. Right. 
which is unfortunate. And he also shot in the scene where he's buying Twinkies at the gas station. Right. Originally, when Powell got the code to call, two boys are in the store and they say to each other, I wonder what code two is. Cupcake alert. Fat <laughs> <laughs> shaming there, surely. Yeah. <laughs> no, outrageous. You don't want two kids to take the piss out of him. Yeah, he's already shot one kid. He's a loose cannon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what he would do. Exactly. <laughs> so there were quite a lot of differences between Thorpe's original novel and what we end up seeing on the screen. In the book, the hero isn't a 30-something New York cop called John McLean. He was a retired cop turned security guard called Joe Leyland in his 60s. Yeah, so Joe Leyland is a character that's not played in The Detective. Right. So maybe not so strange that he was asked to be in the film. Nah, not at all. Yeah, and kind of checks out why Paul Newman and the like were exactly. being asked for it. Yeah. Yeah. The film revolves around a bunch of German thieves robbing the Nakatomi Corporation. In the novel, it's a group of terrorists who are planning to expose the Klaxon Corporation's dealing with Chile's fascist regime. Yeah, which kind of makes the bad guys the good guys. More or less, yeah. yeah. I think it works better as a more black and white cowboy-style heroes versus villains in the film. Definitely. Definitely. Classic, isn't it? The family member who needs saved in the book isn't McLean's wife, Holly. It's Joe Leyland's daughter, Stephanie. Yeah, and whereas Holly's like a decent, caring person, Stephanie's corrupt and immoral. And she's having an affair with Ellis, which is inexcusable. Oh, that would have been awful. <laughs> oh, God. Her surname's also Gennaro, though, so that's where they got that from. Ah, right, right I see. Okay. okay. In the book, the taxi driver just drops Leyland off and leaves the story, whereas Argyle sticks around and has a role to play, and there is no Powell at all in the book. Yeah, so in the book, do you know the air stewardess who McLean kind of gives the eye to at the start yeah, of the film? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so that happens in the book, but Joe Leland takes her number and stays in contact with her throughout the film. So she's the kind of Powell figure who he's talking to all the way through. Oh, That's right. strange. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not interested, mate. See you later. <laughs> well, fucking stewardess, what do you want? <laughs> you old bastard. Yeah. <laughs> you perv. <laughs> and also, there's no happy ending. Stephanie dies at the end of the novel when she falls from the building, and it's hinted at that Joe Leland dies from his injuries as well. Okay. Yeah, miserable. Merry Christmas. That's yeah. me too. <laughs> Leslie Miserables. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but something I'm delighted to report that didn't change from book to screen is that in both versions, Ellis gets shot in the face. Beautiful. Hating <laughs> <laughs> on Ellis. <laughs> He's brilliant, man. He's a great character. I just can't stand him. Really easy <laughs> yeah, to hate yeah. on, to be fair. Yeah. Another change that Joel Silver made as soon as he came on board was the title. He thought Nothing Lasts Forever sounded like a romance story. Yeah. Which to be fair, it does. Mm. Lost romance, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Shane Black was writing a film called Die Hard at the time, but Silver loved the title and persuaded him to let him have it. Right. Black changed the name of his script to The Last Boy Scout instead. All right. Two great titles. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really good. Great film as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, apparently Roderick Thorpe was furious about the title change. He spoke to Silver about it, and Silver said, the best thing that ever happened to your book is this movie. He's <laughs> great, Silver, isn't he? What a piece of work. <laughs> Even though I've changed almost all of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the most famous lines in the film is when McLean says, Yippee ki yay, motherfucker, to Hans. I forgot about that, obviously. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a reference to Roy. Not Roger. like iced tea. Like iced tea. <laughs> Yeah, one of my favourite moments in Boys in the Hood is when he said, it's a reference to Roy Rogers, who sang the phrase in a song called, I'm an old cowhand. 
Yeah, I don't think Roy Rogers signed off with motherfucker, but maybe. <laughs> maybe. Mother clucker. Some <laughs> chicken on the farm, I don't know. <laughs> and it was kind of disputed who came up with the line. De Souza said it was his, and Bruce Willis said that he came up with it. But either way, brilliant line. Doesn't it? matter. It's a, it's iconic for yeah, a reason, isn't it? Yeah. For writing Die Hard, Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. DeSouza didn't get any major award recognition. It did benefit both their careers, though. Stewart went on to co-write Another 48 Hours and The Fugitive, and DeSouza returned to Ben Die Hard 2, and also wrote Hudson Hawk, The Flintstones, Street Fighter, Judge Dredd, and Lara Croft Tomb Raider. Right, so Die Hard 2 then. <laughs> <laughs> Die Hard's his peak then. Yeah. <laughs> Die Hard 2's good. Well, yeah, so neither of them quite hit the heights of Die Hard again, I don't think. I don't think so. No, certainly not. No. Oh, Judge Dredd, no. Moving on to the music, and the composer who worked on Die Hard was Michael Kamen. Yeah. With a feature film career going back to 1976, Kamen had scored many films by this point, most notably Brazil, Highlander, which you fellas love. Absolutely. Yeah, amazing. And Little Weapon, <laughs> among others. Yep. Do, do, do. <laughs> wow. How's Kamen's music on Die Hard, though, Westy? Dunno, can't hear it. Too much gunfire. <laughs> no it's great it's it's very very good as an action score it's not one that i could listen to independently but it's definitely one that supports the visuals and i think that's what Cayman's excellent at doing he's mm. not really renowned as being like wow this is a michael Cayman score but you kind of go yeah this is a michael Cayman film and you know he brings a vibe to it and he brings an emotion to it and he hits them emotions every single time. It's very, very sparse in places. It doesn't seem like it's really bombastic and in your face. But some of the smaller moments, some of the more intimate moments, it just works because it's just there. And it's nothing mm. you can recognize. And I think this is another film that we're covering that doesn't have a theme. It, you don't mm. go, oh, that's the theme for Die Hard. It doesn't have one and it doesn't need one. I think it has a tone and it has an emotion. And I think that's what he does really well. And if you watch the action sequences, the great thing that Cayman and McTeenan do is when the action stops, the music stops and you're left with this mm. silence. So you have to kind of remember what you've seen and you have a breather. And I think he does that really well. Yeah, I think the music is one of the most underrated parts of the film. I mean, it doesn't, you're right, have a big original main theme or anything. But in complementing John McTiernan's vision, I think it's perfect. Yeah. Matien is clearly taking his world and the story very seriously. For that to work, you have to nail the tone, especially in a film which has so much humour. The film does nail it, and a big part of that is down to Michael Kamen's music, which is like a constant source of drama, tension, dread. I think it's excellent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the most inspired thing about the music to me is the use of Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9, Ode to Joy. They are. that in a big rousing action film is a crazy choice but it, it works so well it does yeah Cayman works it back into some of the other music pieces as well if you've noticed and yeah. it adds a huge touch of class to everything yeah. it does works great when it plays when the crew finally open the vault a fantastic inclusion in the score and it I is. think an excellent score overall understated but probably Cayman's best for me right oh yeah I mean it's neck and neck with Highlander <laughs> not being ironic yeah. Highland scores amazing you do know he wrote everything I do I do it for you by Brian Adams right from Robin Hood which is probably one of the greatest <laughs> songs ever written I did not know that he co-wrote it with Adams yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah what I think Cayman does very well here is understand the brief set out by John McTeenan and Joel Silver kind of the only reason McTeenan took the gig is if, if you could take the misery out of the original script and add some fun to it and he's helped massively by Michael Cayman I think 
The film's full of dramatic pieces and classical music, but it's also infused with lighthearted Christmassy cues. Mm-hmm. It's not obvious, but there are bells jingling all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably most obvious when McLean is up to something mischievous, like when he decides to strap the gun to his back at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really small detail, but it keeps the tone just right for me and matches McTainan's vision perfectly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I love all those little touches. Mm. So using Ode to Joy was the idea of John McTainan. He'd got it from a clockwork orange, obviously, where Kubrick uses the music to represent Alex DeLarge's build-up of violent tendencies. At first came and objected to using it and said it was sacrilege. <laughs> he said to McTainan, I will make mincemeat out of Wagner or Strauss for you, but please, not Beethoven." <laughs> <laughs> Bit harsher than Wagner and Strauss, isn't it? Yeah, it's Wagner and Strauss. <laughs> Apparently, Cayman changed his mind when McTiernan told him that Kubrick had used Ode to Joy as well. And that then yeah. gave Cayman the idea of using Singing in the Rain, which is also in A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Mm. And he wrote the melody for that into the score for Die Hard. Yeah. You can also hear Winter Wonderland at one point, if you listen carefully. Right. Great work with the music on Die Hard then. Not bad at all from Ludwig van and Michael Cayman, one of his best scores. Absolutely, yeah. If you listen, if you listen hard for it, it's definitely there. Another key collaboration that John McTiernan was part of on Die Hard was the one with his director of photography, Jan de Bont. Yeah, big Jan. A Dutch cinematographer with a movie career going back to 1971, de Bont had worked several times with Paul Verhoeven, and his most mm. well-known Hollywood work at the time of Die Hard had been Cujo, All the Right Moves, and The Jewel of the Nile. Yeah. Mm. Not too much there that makes him the obvious choice for Die Hard. Not really. How's his work here, though? I think it's wonderful. I think he's hand-in-hand hand with McTiernan. And he's exactly yeah. what McTiernan needs. And the wonderful thing is, I think, Jan de Bont's learning more from McTiernan than he's actually learning, learning from Jan de Bont. I mean, to go on from this and to make Speed and Twister and to direct mm-hmm. both of them films, two huge action films in the 90s. Massive. Mm-hmm. You know, very, very recognisable style. And I think he's borrowed a lot. They borrowed a lot from each other, but I think it's the classical use of visual storytelling. It's very classically shot. It's very static action. There's not a lot of like handheld documentary born style stuff in here. There wasn't at the time anyway, but I think when the camera moves, it moves for a reason as it always should. The use of close-ups is absolutely perfect. The lighting of the whole thing is timeless. It's just timeless. It doesn't look like an 80s film at all. It just looks like an action film of the time. Mm. And it's just, it really, really works. And it's for me, I think it's just beautifully done from start to finish. It's got this consistently beautiful look to it and a consistently brilliant and very, very confident tone. And Yandabon definitely brings that. Yeah, I think when you watch Die Hard today, it's aged well in just about everywhere and nowhere more than in the visuals. I mean, yeah. 99% of the movie is shot like in an 80s office block, functional room layouts, a beige colour palette, but not for a single second does Die Hard look boring. Never, no. no. And I think they achieve that in a few ways. Firstly, I think the effort that McTiernan and DeBont have gone to in terms of composition and blocking is obvious. Yeah, it is. From start to finish, every shot is like perfectly composed yeah, and very meticulously blocked. Yeah. yeah. Very much. Also, the way the camera moves. DeBond said that he wanted the camera to be a floating bystander, and you can see that. Lots of slow pans left and right, yeah. loads of whip pans, lots of zooms oh. in the character reactions. It makes every moment like really dynamic. Yeah, yeah. And we should mention the editing as well, which yeah. goes hand-in-hand with the visuals. The editors were Frank J. Urios and John F. Link, and their work, I think, is incredible. The pacing of the film is just perfect. Yeah. Frantic at times, it is. but never confusing. So, yeah, there's some genuinely great filmmaking craft here, which Die Hard maybe doesn't always get the credit for. And Jan de Bond, I think, is integral to that. Yeah, the way he moves the camera. I mean, when Holly f- sees the kids on the TV, 
the way he moves that camera into a yeah. hole into hands. Boom, it just zooms into the hole. It's amazing. It's fucking yeah. unreal. Yeah, brilliant. It's like a roller coaster ride, the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. I think it's an incredibly shot film. Yandabon deserves so much credit. And like you said, John, credit that I don't think he or the film gets. No. Mm-hmm. He captures the action sequences in a way that you feel like you're there. The camera holds so long on that C4 fireball blast that it could take mm-hmm. your eyebrows off. Yeah. <laughs> Dutch angles all over the place to disorientate in the shootout scene, like you were saying, Westy. Mm-hmm. It's almost intimate in a way. You can feel the kind of glass in McLean's feet yeah. and the terrifying fear of being dragged out of the window by that fire hose at the end because we're in amongst the blood and the sweat on McLean's mm-hmm. face. And that scene where McLean is at the top of the elevator just after the ho-ho-ho bit. I mean, that's just a moving elevator, but it's so goddamn exciting yeah. because you're right in the thick of it. Yeah. His yeah. point of view through there when he's writing the names on his hand as well. Oh, it's Their great. point of view Probably. shots are wonderful. Yeah. Amazing work, and that camera just moves. In every scene, it moves. Glides. Does it glides. There used to be rules in the industry about not being able to cut a shot when the camera is moving. For the first half of the film, McTeenan was shooting two different speeds of the same shot, so it could be edited right, Mm -hmm. but he abandoned it later on, having gained a lot of confidence in his own sense of time. Yeah. Quite right. That sense of movement is just brilliant. I think one of my (sighs) favourite things about the film when I watch it now was how well shot it all is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. No big award recognition for Jan de Bond for his work on Die Hard, but the editors I mentioned, Frank G. Urias and John F. Link, were Oscar nominated. Right? Yeah. They lost out to Arthur Schmidt for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is also a good winner, I think. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, understandable. So great talents all across the board on Die Hard, and in those names we mentioned there, Jeb Stewart, Stephen E. DeSouza, Michael Kamen, Jan de Bond, Frank J. Urias, and John F. Link, some people who brought some huge work to the film. Yeah, some of the best work. Massive. And Beethoven. Let's not forget him. Obviously. (laughs) Never forget him. The end. McTiernan keeps on turning the screw and the third act of Die Hard is full of even more gunfire and even more explosions. Of course it is. The climax and final (laughs) showdown between McLean and Hans is coming, but first, we've got a roof to blow up. We do. Wanting to find out why Hans was on the roof, McLean heads up there and ends up in a fist fight to the death with Carl. At the same time, with Dwayne handling things about as badly as it's possible to, he finds himself usurped in the pecking <laughs> order. There's a new plan involving helicopters, the hostages, and the FBI. Nice. Lovely. You want the miracles, I give you Westy. Just like fucking Saigon, eh, Slick? <laughs> I was in junior high, dickhead. Fucking brilliant. Love that bit. <laughs> I love these guys. I love how gung-ho they are. It's fucking hilarious. <laughs> They're just fucking woo-hoo. <laughs> it's like this is just adding another level of 10 because you fucking really don't like these two. I mean, Special Agent Johnson, I don't really like him. Agent Johnson's all right. No relation. <laughs> but it's great when he's like, I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Fucking yeah, I love that. brilliant. That's, that's, really that's a great moment. And then John gets on the roof and this is kind of his arc where he's turned and he respects Holly's position and he calls her Holly Gennaro. Where's mm-hmm. Holly Gennaro? And she's in the vault. He's like, where is the vault? And it's like the first time he's not looking at the women who are next to him. But it's just great when he's standing. They're not listening to him. And he starts just shooting on the roof. I'd love to do that. I'd love to have that much confidence and just know that I'm fucking right. And there's a big group of people and I'm like, just fucking, they're going to blow the whole thing. And they're like, not listen. Fucking move now, you fucking. I'd love that. That's fucking great. But when he's like wrapping that fire hose round and there's that shot, you know the shot I'm talking about, when he leaves that rooftop and it blows up behind him, 
how the fucking did that? Oh, it's brilliant. so fucking it's good. Incredible. What a shot that is. And you're just like, you're going, well, that's, that's not a stunt, man. That's Bruce Willis. And the whole fucking, it's, it's fucking exploding behind him. How the fuck did they do that? <laughs> and I am literally breathless even talking about this sequence. I'm still excited about it. It's just absolutely wonderful from start to finish. It is. It is a great sequence. I mean, the two FBI agents that turn up, there were a couple of Johnsons, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> How is it that the two beat cops in McLean and Powell know more than the deputy chief of police, the SWAT yeah. team, and the FBI? Yeah. <laughs> Failing upwards, all these guys. Yeah, it's just an allegory of the American government, isn't it? I think the yeah, higher yeah. you go, the less and you know. the establishment, isn't it? Oh, definitely, yeah. But those shots of the helicopters, like, sweeping down the avenue of the stars in LA are outstanding. They're unreal, oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. that's so exciting. I know that the point where the helicopter swoops in on the roof, the LAPD told Joel Silver they couldn't get too low for safety reasons, and Silver said, oh, yes, of course, absolutely, to the police. Land on it. <laughs> and then told the pilots, get yeah. in as low as you can. Yeah, they said it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> And the way it all builds up is brilliantly written and then brilliantly executed yeah. by McTier. And then specifically the bit where McLean jumps off the roof with yeah. the fire hose around his waist. Oh, wow. what a shot jumps off and survives the fall, but finds himself trapped outside the building. So he shoots the window out and makes it through, but is almost killed when the fire hose falls and it nearly drags him out the window. It's just danger after danger. Yeah, it's great. Also saw an interview with Stephen E. DeSouza, where he said that McLean using the fire hose was a nod to Harold Lloyd who also jumped off a roof tight to a fire hose in Safety Last, the silent comedy right. from 1923. Okay. Mm-hmm. All the 80s classics inspired by that scene in Safety Last. Yeah. yeah, The clock tower scene in Back to the Future as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is just a masterclass in how to write and then shoot an action scene. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. And Jan de Bond had estimated the helicopter sequence would take three nights of shooting to get everything they needed. After months of negotiations, the authorities agreed to allow it. But after they received a lot of complaints, the city told McTiernan they could only give them two hours one Sunday night to shoot it all. Wow. Wow. DeBont and McTiernan planned it meticulously to be able to get everything in one hour. But after the first take, the police said, this is far too dangerous and shut it down. So they ended up shooting the whole sequence in 30 minutes. Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can't blame the police, to be fair. Those shots of the helicopters are crazy. They're unbelievable. But it must have just been one pass. That must have just yeah. been one pass, yeah. It was one take, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're not taking it easy. They're storming down there. Yeah. <laughs> but the moment as well, after Hans blows the roof and the blast takes the helicopter down, that shot of the helicopter has a ball of flames yeah. tumbling down the building. That's a miniature. Oh, my God. It was done by Boss Studios, Richard Edlund's company. Yeah. It looks totally real to Absolutely. Me. It does. It looks brilliant. The sound design on that as well totally buys into it. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And the agents Johnson were played by Robert Davy and Grand Bush. There's a line in the helicopter where you masterfully said it, Westy Davies. Johnson says, it's just like in fucking Saigon, Ace Lake. And Bush's Johnson said, I was in junior high, dickhead. That line wasn't in the script. And McTainan told Bush just to say it before they shot. And he said, when I said that line, the look of dismay on Davies' face was solid gold. Davy never brought character for anyone, and McTiernan loved every second of yeah. it. Yeah, and Saigon was a fucking <laughs> disaster, wasn't it? For the for the Americans, yeah, it was yeah. just you had to pull out of Saigon. It's like nothing to celebrate at all. Yeah, and he's clearly about twenty five. There's no waves in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> His first time in a helicopter, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I was in junior high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of prep went into the moment. McLean leaps from the building. My favorite shot. Stuntman Ken oh. Bates did the jump. Which is amazing because you just would not think it was a stuntman at all. He was on wires no. and a decelerator allowed him to free fall. The moment where McLean first leaps off the roof was performed by Willis on a car park rooftop. 
The roof was rigged with mortars, and Willis' back was padded, and his skin was covered in protective gel to absorb the heat. Wow. The jump was 25 feet down to the bottom, where he landed on an airbag, and Joel Silver and McTiernan did the jump first to show how safe it was. Joel Silver Whoa. did it. <laughs> Fucking hell, how big's the airbag? <laughs> <laughs> the blast from the mortars pushed Willis to the far edge of the airbag, and he just, just made it. Sounds dangerous as hell, all oh, this. It is so dangerous. Silva's <laughs> yeah. so like, I've done this on Lethal Weapon, it's easy. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very much like that. Yeah. But I'd have loved it if Willis had refused to do it and had no choice but to use the shot of Joel Silva. <laughs> Just like, ah! Plummeting down, <laughs> rolling off the top. <laughs> With a cigar in his mouth. <laughs> and well, during this helicopter sequence, like I said before, it's intercut with McLean hmm. fighting Carl. Yeah. And I think it's perfectly set up because John is on the hunt for what Hans was doing on the roof. Yeah. What the hell were you doing? And he finds out, but he can't get his message through to Al because he gets Carl's gun barrel in the face. Great storytelling. Yeah. And by this point, McLean's completely out on his feet and you would think that he was no match for Carl. But he breaks into this feral animal with these rapid fire punches. Yeah. (laughs) And he throws a few hurtful comments in there as well about when he killed his brother, which, I mean, he's taken the credit for, but let's be honest, it was an accident. I snapped his fucking (laughs) neck. The other bits of dialogue are really strange. I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm going to cook you. I'm going to eat you. I believe he yeah, says. Yeah, it's outrageous. What the fuck? It's crazy, really oddly out of yeah. place that in this moment of ultimate upheaval, he's talking about putting them in the oven and, and yeah, eating them. Really <laughs> What's he talking about? <laughs> yeah. Those lines must have been improvised by Willis. That wasn't in the script, must surely. Have been, yeah. Yeah. Definitely not. <laughs> in the moment. And I do like Carl's moves during this fight. Those balletic flying kicks are a standout. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And what I really love is when McLean finally offs him, which is really satisfying, the chain around his neck, McLean doesn't have any time to admire his handiwork or catch his breath. He checks his clip and is out yeah. of there because he knows the roof is going to blow. A fight scene that doesn't outstay its welcome and it's full of energy. I absolutely yeah, his love background it. in ballet comes and shines through on this sequence, doesn't it? Of course yeah. it does. Oh, massively, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it's great. I mean, this is where we get the payoff of McLean killing Carl's brother an hour and a half earlier. Yeah. A, mm-hmm. a lesser action film wouldn't have added that character detail and just had Carl want to fight McLean, but the character drama behind it makes it much better. Definitely. It's emotionally charged, isn't it? Definitely. And Alexander Godunov, who plays Carl, is excellent. A big, graceful brute of a man. Yeah. Oh, he's wonderful. And I know that McTiernan said that he wanted the fight to feel not choreographed, and he said, I wanted it messy, like a fight in the sixth grade schoolyard. Yeah. So yeah, you know, someone being hung by a chain at the end of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Willis's punches to that stomach when he says, bam, 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 bam. Yeah. It's fucking brilliant. Right. Alexander Godunov was known as a, obviously a world famous Russian ballet dancer at the yeah. time. And, and it was Jackie Birch's idea to cast him. He declined at first. So Joel Silver set up a meeting and convinced him to do it. Obviously. <laughs> Threatened to kill him. <laughs> Getting involved all the yeah. time. <laughs> to be fair, we laugh about Silver, but he's some producer. He fucking is. Oh, like, he's amazing. Yeah. He gets the he job gets done. He gets the job done, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Jeb Stewart met with him as well, and he said that Goodenough walked into Fox Plaza and people came to their windows to watch him walk in. He <laughs> said he, he was just a perfect physical specimen. And when he was coming to see him, Stewart assumed that he wanted to talk about adding dialogue, but Godunov shouted, no, 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 I want to take some lines away. Because he struggled with the English language and he only agreed to the rule if some lines were cut. Yeah, sounds like Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only Godunov probably didn't cost $45 million or whatever his rate was at the time. Definitely not, no. <laughs> it's strange as well because he's in the money pit. He is, wonderful in that. 
hilarious. He's got good comic timing in that. Really? Great in witness as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. While doing this, he said that he immediately felt comfortable holding a gun, which made him feel uncomfortable. Right. I think he looks great, just as a visual presence. Looks yeah. fantastic in the film. I want blood. Fucking yes. Brilliant. <laughs> One of the last things written for the film was when de Souza came up with how Hans and his crew were planning to escape the Nakatomi. De Souza had written a TV movie called Spirit, where the villain planned to blow up a children's hospital, then escape in a fake ambulance. He recycled the idea for the end of Die Hard. Great. Yeah, but then the first screening for the executives of Fox, De Souza said that he realised immediately there was an issue because when we see Hans and the lads disembark the truck at the start, we yeah. see inside and there's, there's no ambulance. No ambulance. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. De Souza said that he started coming up with ideas, but McTiernan said, if the audience says, two hours ago I looked in the back of that truck and didn't see an ambulance, I don't care. <laughs> Which is fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. You don't care. Yeah. No. Doesn't bother me yeah. at all. Not at all. <laughs> Some huge moments there then. A few more terrorists are gone. Carl is gone, or is he? And mm. we're going to need some more FBI guys, I guess. Yeah, I guess. From there, McLean heads back upstairs for the final showdown. Hans has Holly captive, and Eddie with the cowboy boots is still hanging around for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> the climax of Die Hard brings us Carl's return from the dead, the completion of Powell's arc, and one of the most famous villains' deaths in 1980s Hollywood. The final scenes, Westy. Yeah. How does it go? Oh, it goes really well, doesn't it? It pays off fucking beautifully. <laughs> what an ending this is. The final showdown with Hans is exactly how you want him to look when he's walking mm. down that. What I criticised in the Casino Royale podcast was that three-cut close-up. It was bang. It was actually oh, Martin yeah. Campbell, and that makes sense. But here it is again yeah. on the tapes. Bang, bang, bang. It's there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of don't like that normally but i fucking love it here because <laughs> there's that little musical jingle and it's just it's christmas and there's a christmas tape and he's looking at it it's just really really great the music's very very recognizable here you can hear it all the way through it builds the tension wonderfully but are we going to talk about the elephant in the room are we going to talk about how the fuck does he stick that gun to his sweaty, dirty back <laughs> with Christmas tape? I had a feeling you'd bring this up. <laughs> and more importantly, do we give a shit? I mean, I don't really care, but it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> You've tried, haven't you? I have. <laughs> I've rolled around in the garden. I've killed four terrorists and tried to stick a gun to me back. It didn't work. But maybe it's, it's not going to stick physically, but it sticks emotionally. So that's why that really yeah. works for me. And when Hans goes out, they save trails Hans, bang, bang, and he, he kind of forgets about Holly for a split second. <laughs> He's so yeah. chuffed with himself. He's just basking in the moment, like, isn't he? Yes, yeah, there, I'm fucking, yes, this is good. And then he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> he does, yeah. And then when he cuts to the outside of the building, and you get that last line that should not be funny, but it is. <laughs> I hope that's not a hostage. But the way that guy yeah. comes down, it's horrible. Oh, it's a great shot. Yeah. What a sequence. What a way to end it. What a way to take the bad guy out. What a fucking film. Yeah, I think it's a great way for Hans to go as well. What works, and this I think is something more modern blockbuster should take from, is that after all the huge spectacle, helicopter crashes, the roof blowing up, the last confrontation between the hero and the villain is small and intimate. Yeah. yeah. McLean outwits Hans with the gun on his back, and the way they tie it back into Christmas with the wrapping paper tape is really good. Mm-hmm. Also really good how it ties back into the cowboy theme we've had all the way through. John yeah, Wayne, Gary Cooper, much. Grace Kelly get a mention. McLean outdraws Hans and Eddie and then blows the smoke off his gun, gunslinger yeah, style. Yeah, yeah. And I love how mm-hmm. it's literally McLean's last two bullets. He's flying by the seat of his pants all the way through the film and it's the same here. 
And mm. something people might not be aware of, McLean's fine line to hands after the shootout, Happy Trails hands. Mm-hmm. Happy Trails was another song by Roy Rogers. Nice. Great. And only Alan Rickman, as Hans Gruber, could say, yippee Kaye, motherfucker, and have everyone laugh their heads off for 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant finale. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I like the moment when Hans is dangling off the building for a few yeah. reasons. Firstly, it's his truly menacing face when he turns from a side profile, baring his teeth. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Brilliant. I think that Bonnie Bedelia really sells her terror. She's screaming and wailing as if her life depended on it, which of course it yeah. does. Mm. And the look on Hans's face is priceless when McLean unclasps that Rolex. Mm. The symbol of 80s greed being discarded, yeah. which works on Hans's level and John and Holly's yeah. level. Just wonderful, wonderful. And finally, I like that Hans's come up and comes as a result of Holly and John working as a team. The only yeah. people who Hans has already identified as a threat to his yeah. plans. Yeah. Love that. McTiernan wanted to get the famous close-up shot of Hans as he falls, so wanted Alan Rickman to perform the fall himself. Rickman had to go through stunt training to learn how to fall backwards safely. It was the last shot they got, and Rickman said, they'll make sure you've got it all in the can before they do the shot where they might kill you. <laughs> Brilliant. Got the yeah, we've got money. the film, so let's kill him now. <laughs> yeah, and to show how safe it was, McTiernan again did it first. Right. Oh, he loves it. Not Joel Silver this time, though. I mean, this is where you want the shot of Silver. Close yeah. up on him instead. Yeah. <laughs> but when Rickman came to do the stunt, he was told they would drop him on the count of three, but then they yeah. dropped him on one or two. So that look of shock in Han's eyes was real. Yeah. It was quite innovative too, that shot. Because Rickman was falling away from the camera, it was hard to keep him in focus. So Jan de Bond had a system designed where a computer would automatically change the camera focus, right. which is pretty smart. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it was done against a blue screen, and then they composited that under the top of the shot taken from the upper floors of Fox Plaza. Still right. stands up, that shot. I think right. it was really oh, good. Oh, God, yeah, it really does. Classic. And that wide shot we get of Hans's body falling to the ground was Ken Bates up to his old tricks again, mm. the stuntman. He dropped from 318 feet from the top of Fox Plaza without a scratch. Wow. Blimey. I always assumed that was a model, not a real person. No, mm-hmm. it's definitely a real person, like, yeah, yeah, 100%. I bet Silver didn't volunteer to do that one. <laughs> no way no way we'd still be scraping them off the ground yeah. another thing that Desauza brought to the script was that he increased the size of Hans's crew he brought in Uli played by Al Young and also Eddie played by Dennis Hayden who makes it in this scene Eddie was supposed to mm. be the first person killed but he had the chance meeting with Desauza's sister-in-law Bobby Marcus she was a publicist and Hayden said if you can get Stephen to write me until the end I'll hire you as my publicist <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Job for the boys and girls, by the sounds of it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. That does explain it, though, because every time in this scene, I'm like, why is this guy still here? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. He's done, he's done nothing. <laughs> and to wrap it all up, I want to talk about the moment where Power wipes Carl yes. out. Good and bad in this scene for me, to be honest. Yeah. It's a glorious moment when McLean and Powell are together at last. The blow up of music, a laugh, and a warm embrace. And it ties up both McLean's relationship with Powell mm-hmm. and with Holly in one sentence. This is my wife, Holly Gennaro, Holly McLean. Yeah. That's Wonderful. great, mm. lean right in that. Excellent. But then you get the bit where Carl comes from nowhere, the lethal weapon ripoff. Probably the <laughs> only part in the film that really brings it down for me. Mm. Really? Because Powell plugs Carl multiple times. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to make sense. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, the ineptitude of those guys clearing the crime scene. 
shall we check if the massive blonde is dead before we put him in a body bag? <laughs> Don't bother. Just get him in there. <laughs> yeah. It's just there to serve the plot and to complete Powell's arc. And on that, I mean, what is the film saying? Guns are good? Yeah. Because Powell has already said that he's never been able to draw his gun on anyone mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Now he's conquered that lifelong fear. He can blow away people with impunity now. Yeah. I just don't get it. doesn't sit right for me, unlike the one in Lethal Weapon, which really yeah. does. I agree. I think Powell's arguing that he learns how to start blowing people away again is dubious <laughs> to say the least. I mean, ethically mainly, but also in the US, shooting an unarmed kid, he'd probably get promoted for that. <laughs> that shot we get, though, the close-up on Powell's smoking pistol and then the focus pull on Powell's face, that yeah. is a great shot. And that music swell beautiful yeah yeah it is brilliant it's brilliantly executed i'm just not sure about it narratively or morally <laughs> and morally yeah <laughs> but it's fantastic when thornburg gets popped in the chop yeah, great punch <laughs> did you get there <laughs> <laughs> the day before they were due to shoot the final scene michael Kamen sent the music another arrangement of ode to joy when joel silver heard it he didn't like it so they went with the temp music they'd been using a mixture of pieces from cocoon man on fire and aliens yeah, you can hear the aliens' music, can't you? Mm, you can, yeah. And then they added in Let It Snow by Vaughan Munro at the end, much to Cayman's fury, mm. I'd imagine. I mean, Let It Snow is great. It's a shame they couldn't get Oda Joy to work, though. I mean, it would have made more sense than Cocoon, obviously. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think they were saying, because Oda Joy was kind of like the theme for the bad guys, and the bad guys yeah. are no longer. Yeah, it makes sense, yeah. And we're at the end of Die Hard. The bad guys are defeated, Hans is dead, McLean and Holly reunited, and Powell turns into a trigger-happy lunatic. Yes, the true <laughs> meaning of Christmas, Joel Silver style. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Reception and awards. Die Hard did big things on its release in July 1988. On a budget of 25 mm. to $35 million, it grossed about $140 million. Nice. It did very well for itself. Before it did come out, the studio were delighted with it, but Bruce Willis wanted an unbiased opinion. So he arranged for a screening for Glenn Gordon Caron, right. who was the creator of Moonlighting. All right. He rang Willis up after he'd seen it and said, holy mackerel, man, that's a movie. <laughs> Not a TV show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're a fan of mackerel, Westy, aren't you? Big fan. Brain food, oily fish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fox were delighted with the finished film, I mean, naturally, but they still weren't totally convinced on Bruce Willis's ability to fill a movie theater, being a, a TV actor yeah. and all. I mean, they've given him the money. Yeah. They've shot the film. <laughs> it's out. <laughs> Idiots. And Stephen E. D'Souza said that when Die Hard trailers came out, some audiences laughed when they saw Willis in the lead. Right. So a month before the movie was released, Fox had new posters designed where Willis's face was removed entirely. Then when the film came out and it was a big hit, they put the originals back out with Willis okay. on them. Yeah, the Souza said that the audiences didn't just laugh. He said some of them booed, right. which is outrageous. <laughs> and then $5 million, get him off the poster. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. <laughs> As for the critics, let's start with the old cowboy that is Roy Rogers Ebert. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> what did Rog think of Die Hard? Um, I'm going to go with... Ooh, I'm going to go with a two and a half. Three and a half. <sighs> Loose closest. He pretty much slammed it. Right. He had big problems with the secondary character and gave it two stars out of four. Oh, okay. Wow. Rog said, without the deputy chief, Die Hard would have been a more than possible thriller. With him, it's a mess. And that's a shame because the film does contain superior special effects, impressive stunt work and good performances, especially by Rickman. So Ebert mm. laying all the blame at Paul Gleason's door there. 
He's only in about six scenes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. He doesn't know what he's talking about, Rog, to be honest, because he gave Roadhouse three and a half stars <laughs> for next year. Yeah. <laughs> What's he yeah. on about? <laughs> Dave K of the Chicago Tribune said, Die Hard emulated Alien and Robocop by developing a humorous and sentimental design that perfected the action genre, but in doing so, it lacked a personality of its own. Right. Alien, humorous. Okay. Yeah, barrel of laughs. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Pissed myself all the way through that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Empire Magazine, no, the full five-star treatment, obviously. obviously. Of course, naturally. It was a retrospective review, and they said, John McClane's smart-mouth New York cop was a career-defining turn, mixing banter, action heroics, and a dirty white vest, a stunning effect. The pinnacle of the 80s action movie, and if it's not the greatest action movie ever made, then it's damn close. Every yeah. retrospective review by Empire's fucking five stars. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. Well, you know, in hindsight, it's a classic. Yeah, of course yeah. it is. 20 years later, whatever. I mean, I much prefer a review where we can unfairly mock what they've said decades later. Yeah, definitely. That's pretty much bang on. Yeah, yeah like Attack of the Clones <laughs> yeah, or some yeah. shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes, Die Hard has a 94% approval rating from both critics and audiences. And on IMDb, a very nice 8.2 out of 10 leaving it one no, place short of Fritz Lang's Metropolis together at last. Yeah. <laughs> German. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> at the Oscars, Die Hard was nominated for four, which were Best Sound for Don J. Baseman, Kevin F. Cleary, Richard Overton, and Al Overton Jr. Best Film Editing for Frank J. Urias and John F. Link. Best Sound Effects Editing for Stephen Hunter Flick and Richard Shaw. And Best Visual Effects for Richard Edland, Al DeSaro, Brent Boats, and Thane Morris. Boss Studios, basically. Yeah. All deserved, though I think Bruce Willis might have had something to say about the Best Sound Award, seeing as it left him deaf like Beethoven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it was good sound. <laughs> it's loud enough. <laughs> yeah. So Die Hard was a huge box office hit on its release. Not massively popular with every critic, but that's changed over time. And now, an action classic. Absolutely. Top oh, of the pile. Best in class. Sequels and Influence. With the huge commercial success of Die Hard, Joel Silver couldn't get a sequel into production quickly enough. And since the first film, there have been four sequels. Die Hard 2, directed by Rennie Harlan, came in 1990. John then returned for Die Hard with a Vengeance in 1995. Len Wiseman helmed Live Free or Die Hard in 2007. And John Moore directed A Good Day to Die Hard in 2013. Mm. So what do we think of those sequels? Luke? Yeah, I'm not even going to mention four and five. Not worth it. <laughs> no. Not good enough. <laughs> On the second one, it's a fine action movie, but it does everything that the first one avoided. Cheesy one-liner gags, terrible bad guy, four story beats. Hmm. Having said all that, I do watch it every year, but it is just a kind of a bland action. Yeah. Hmm. I think the only thing that brings me back to it is Bruce Willis, sure. John McLean. The third one, though, is a different story. Great location, obviously, the writing is great. Mateen and back on board doing what he did in the first one to great effect. I think Jeremy Irons is an able bad yeah. guy. He's no Alan Rickman, but he fills the boots mm, decently. Yeah, he does. And the inclusion of Sam Jackson and his dynamic with Willis is irresistible. Yeah. I think the ending's a bit strange, but it is head and shoulders the best sequel for me. I would, yeah, totally agree with that. Four and five. I don't even know if I've seen five. I probably have, but it's it's oh, it's not that memorable to the point where I, I have no idea. Four and five kind of merge into the same. I remember the cop car going at the helicopter. That was all right. Yeah. Um, that's probably it, though. Yeah. Justin Long's in the fourth, isn't well, he? Well, fuck that. Prefer it when he's a walrus. <laughs> the second one I really enjoy. 
because you can you can just leave your brain at the door like Luke said it is a no brainer yeah. there's hardly any intellect it it's probably is. the only thing that you think oh that's clever is there's blanks in one of the guns and there's live rounds in mm. another one and it's clearly labeled yeah. for the audience i don't think this it's just a Rennie Harlan flick isn't it it's boom bang bash. it is yeah there's nothing wrong with it it's just it's not as elevated as die hard it's just not at mm-hmm. all but i mean it's i still love it i still think it's great i still think bruce willis is is brilliant in it as mclean i think he keeps all of the same beats that he did in the first one vengeance again mm-hmm. love it i think it's a great great film so i love two i love three four and five can get the fuck <laughs> back to the first die hard then regarded by many like empire magazine as one of if not the greatest action films ever made so what is the film's legacy how have we seen its influence since 1988? Oh, I mean, every single action film that's been made since 1988. Has an element of Die Hard. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it just absolutely changed the game, the way that it showed how movie villains should be written. It showed how characters in action films can be written. Not necessarily mm-hmm. should, but also just all of those ones, Die Hard on a plane, Die Hard on a bus, Die Hard on a, in a, an ice rink, that is still happening now. The, the longevity of the film is is matched by the longevity of the influence throughout action films. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of action movies, there's been a lot of great examples, many of which we've talked about. Mm. Raiders, Aliens, Terminator 2, Mad Max Fury Road. I think Die Hard stands up as well as any of those. And in terms of which is the most influential, it's up there. Yeah. I mean, T2 with ILM's groundbreaking CGI changed the game in 1991. With Die Hard, while the effects work is brilliant, it's more around the writing, I think. Yeah, and like is, you yeah. say, look at the whole idea of Die Hard on a something, mm-hmm. which has now became like a valid elevator pitch. Yeah, of course. I can't think of any other film where that's the case. Mm. Nobody's saying to a Hollywood exec, it's Silence of the Lambs on a bus. <laughs> Other, surely. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> I mean, it sounds great. Yeah. yeah it does. But I mean, that we still hear that today, decades later, and still see beaten action films that are near carbon copies of scenes in Die Hard. Yeah. I think that's some achievement. Oh. Surely nobody was expecting that at the time. Certainly not. Yeah, I think what Die Hard did was bring a fragility to the main star and have an emotion and make them fragile and make them hurt. And there weren't these superstars that just powered the way through anything. And there was this element of peril that it brought to it. And again, the intelligence to the writing, the depth to the writing, they weren't scared to go there and have relationships that didn't work out. I see its influence mostly in in Speed for me. I watch Speed and I just see Die Hard. That's the film for me where I'm mm. like, that is a carbon copy. Probably sits you under Bond as well. But I think that's the film for me that takes that blueprint and reworks it and reworks it really well. Many sequels for Die Hard then. Very much hit and miss for us, but in catapulting the careers of Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman and becoming a benchmark by which action films since are measured, the original's legacy is sealed, I think. Oh, forever. Oh, amazing. All the right movies ranking. And that is that on Die Hard. The roof has been blown off. Now it's time to see what we really think by giving our final summaries and scores on the film. Right. Westy, you want to kick us off? Your summary and score for Die Hard, please? Yep. No alarms and no surprises. <laughs> At all. Over here. We all know. And apparently it's a classic Westy now to do this thing. It's not going to be any different to what you expect us to say. I love it. Yeah. It's flawless. It's timeless. It's wonderful. I'll never get sick of it. I've watched it for oh, maybe twice, three times a year since I very first saw it. 
uh, it's just it's just a wonderful thing. And I've said <laughs> I've said this a hundred times, and I'll say it again. If we have a conversation and you say I don't like Die Hard, then I don't like you. <laughs> Classic Westy. <laughs> it's a ten. Yeah, it's a great film for sure. A film that I think gets better with age. To be honest, I agree. the further we get from 1988 compared to how little Die Hard seems outdated is really impressive to me. That comes in the writing, a timelessly influential concept. It's in the direction, fantastically choreographed and put together by John McTiernan. The visual effects from Boss Studios, aside from one or two shots, the whole thing still looks 100% real to mm, me. It does. And in Bruce Willis's McLean and Alan Rickman's hands, the greatest action hero and action villain combo on the big screen for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the greatest action films of all time, one of the greatest Christmas films of all time. It deserves a 10, but as it's not one of my very favorite films, uh, what? I'm not going to give it one. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> all of that. <laughs> it's a roof exploding 9.5, 9.5 out of 10. Unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> that is a shame. Oh, the quarterback is toast. <laughs> <laughs> And Luke, your summary and score for Die Hard, I think we know. Yeah, I mean, I think I've made my feelings <laughs> clear on this one many over the years, many times over. Yeah. It's just a magnificent film, full of thrills and spills. And for a runtime well over two hours, it keeps you on the edge of your seat and it never sags. Absolutely. All parts of the filmmaking process purring, really, really working mm. together to create something magnificent. There is that moment with Powell and Carl at the end, which could threaten maximum scores, but as it's the best action movie ever made for me, and a whole load more than that besides, it's an easy 10 out of 10. Easy. Lovely. So now it's time for the modern day Special Agent Johnsons, our Twitter, <laughs> our ex-followers. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. opened it up to them and some of their comments on Die Hard. Sonny Crockett at Sonny Crockett 92 said, 10, perfect movie, great cast and script, perfect levity, Greatest action movie of all time. Yeah, I said it. It's a Christmas movie. Sorry, I hurt your feelings. <laughs> Didn't hurt my feelings, Sonny. No, no feelings hurt here. Absolutely fine. <laughs> Overthinking that one, bro. <laughs> Lurker McLurkerson at Lurking is my jam. Wow. So, wow. big fan of Lurking. Yeah. Sounds like it. Sounds weird. Lurker said, it has a few too many needlessly stupid supporting characters. The Agents Johnson, Dwayne T. Robinson, Harvey the Yanker Man, Ellis, Dick Thornburg, etc. But other than that, it's extraordinarily good. So good, they've been trying and failing to replicate it ever since. Etc. That's it. Etc. <laughs> <laughs> There's no more. All of the cast are needless, but it's an exceptionally good film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are loads of supporting characters, but I quite like them all. To yeah, be they're all them. great. They've love all them. got a reason to be there. And one of our patrons, Derek Noonan, said, the best in-theatre movie experience of my life. Right. Wow. Never have I felt so pumped walking out of the cinema with my friends. Still remember it vividly over 30 years later, the perfect action film. Nice. Agreed. Del boy. Went straight off to get some Twinkies, no doubt. Absolutely. And altogether, our followers rated the film as, what do you think, out of 10? 10. Fucking 10. I mean, it's got to be a 10. It was 9.5 out of 10. Oh, what? Disappointed. It was a whisker away. 
Right. So in total, that gives Die Hard 39 out of 40. That's still a hell of a score. Not good enough. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say Geronimo, motherfucker, but Wessie's kind of pissed on me chips. (laughs) I'm going to piss on your 0.5 chips. 39's not good enough. (laughs) I'm a perfectionist. (laughs) And that's it. We're off. Get the ambulance ready. Hopefully you like this episode and don't think we need to wake up and smell what we've been shoveling. <laughs> Not any more than usual, anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. Next time out, Westy, Luke and Matt are having a really nice time talking Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson and Martin McDonough. They're in Bruges. Nice. Oh, Should yes. be a fun one. Yeah, be like a fucking fairy tale or something, right, Luke? Oh, yeah, all the bridges, <laughs> all the rivers, all that. Yeah, yeah. All, yeah. all the old buildings and that. <laughs> <laughs> Just try not to say anything too loud or crass, Westy. No, but I mean, I'll try to be very best. I'll behave myself. Yeah. To find out more about becoming a patron, supporting what we do, and accessing our archive and bonus episodes, please visit patreon.com forward slash all the right movies or click the subscribe link on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all of your other podcast platforms. Just five star reviews, though, please. Yep. Full marks, unlike Die yes. Hard, full marks. Yes, four, no 4.5s. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. shit. I think Empire Magazine, so yeah, five yeah. stars. Yeah. Think retrospective review. Yeah. Come back yeah. and give away, yeah. Wait a year and give her five stars. <laughs> Socially, you can keep up with all the right movies on Twitter, now X, where we are at AT Right Movies. We post threads on there that tell the stories behind classic films. Everything that we post has been said by somebody involved in the production or comes from three separate sources. Same as on our podcast, so check that out. Yes, please. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash all the right movies. On Instagram and threads, we are at all the underscore right movies. On TikTok, we are at all the right movies. You can join our movie group on Facebook to get involved with lots of movie chat and fun. And our website, which is full of great features, is at all the right movies.com it is Ooh, lot to get on with yeah lots of presents to open there mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all off now to negotiate million dollar deals for breakfast and handle some euro trash absolutely <laughs> if this is our idea of christmas you've got to be here for new years so <laughs> come back next time for in bruges happy trails everyone and merry christmas merry christmas, merry christmas everyone thank you, so thank you for, for listening, listening.